fees and to require an individual to possess a permit for a salvaged game animal. This is no different than the thousands of sportsmen and women across the state needing a tagger permit to harvest game animals in the state of Nevada and we pay a fee. Regards, Chris Cephalou, Nevada Bighorns Unlimited. So I just wanted that um, to be on the record. <clears throat> and with that, we'll move on to agenda item number nine, how quotas are developed, presentation, game division administrator, Mike Scott, informational. The game division will give an informational presentation on how quotas are developed. Mr. Scott. Thank you, Madam Chair, members of the commission. <clears throat> With the discussion we'll have tomorrow and much of the correspondence you've received, uh, it seems timely to provide you with a, a presentation that will show you how the department collects and interprets big game data and the process we follow to provide you with big game quota recommendations. Um, as you're aware, not everyone agrees with department recommendations. Uh, sometimes we have disagreements because the data we collect may indicate a different result to those of us in the department than it does to a member of the public or a cab member or members of the commission. Um, we rely on the best data we can collect and our goal is to provide you with sound recommendations that are based on science. Uh, the process we use is very conservative, especially compared to other states, but uh, the fact that we manage that way is a source of pride for me. Um, so you all know Cody McKee, he's the staff elk and moose biologist, and Cody Schroeder is the staff antelope and mule deer biologist. They're going to give you a presentation showing you in detail how our quota recommendations are developed. Uh, so with that, I will let them get started with their presentation. Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, Madam Chair, members of the commission, Cody McKee, for the record, wildlife staff specialist in the game division. I'm going to share my screen um, so that we can jump into a PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to cover. Okay, are you guys able to see a big helicopter? Yes, we can see it. All right, great. And, and is my audio okay? I know the last meeting that we had, there were some, some challenges. Okay, yes. great. All right, so I'm gonna cover part one today. Um, in the past, Cody and I have shared, uh, shared this presentation. I've covered the aerial survey portion and Cody talked a lot about um, our harvest data, population modeling, and the uh, quota recommendation process. Uh, we split that up a little bit more. I'm going to focus on um, all of the various data inputs that we use. Um, and the point that I want to make home today is this is a very data-driven process. And there's a series of checks and balances along the way that um, are key indicators to ourselves, Cody and I, Mike Cox, as well as our biologists, um, that would indicate to us that something might not be right. Maybe, it, maybe some adjustments need to be made. And, and um, at the end of this presentation, I hope that um, you all have the same impression that the, the data that we use is very sound. And in fact, it's some of the best out of all Western state agencies. All right, so to begin with, uh, many of you have received the latest copy of the Big Game Status Report. All the information that I'm gonna talk, talk about today is is summarized within this document. I understand it's a very big report. Um, however, 
this is really the culmination of an entire year's worth of work. Um, and just as a, as a brief shout out, um, our biologists, staff, Mike, I'll put a tremendous amount of work this year into providing a quality document to the Wildlife Commission and other uh, members of the public. And I hope that uh, that work shines through as you reviewed, reviewed our report this year. So while we're developing um, and modeling our populations and, and getting to that ultimate point of recommending quotas, there's various data sources that go into this process. Now, the absence of any one of these data sources doesn't necessarily mean that we're making uninformed decisions about our populations. And that's a point that I, that I plan to bring up um, throughout this presentation. So first off, I'm gonna cover a little bit about our aerial surveys, the traditional method of survey data collection. Um, I'm gonna dive into our mandatory hunt reporting and um, I'm gonna take a deeper dive into this than maybe we've done in the past because there's a lot of interesting and noteworthy takeaways that you yourselves can, can gain just by reviewing our harvest data and potentially comparing it to past years. And then also we incorporate a lot of other information into these decisions that we're making, whether that's movements, um, demographic information uh, based on the population itself and also age structures. So for instance, collecting teeth from elk hunters like we uh, just did this year. So just as a, as, a, as a quick overview, what are our aerial surveys? It's the collection of a representative sample from our various big game herds to estimate the age and sex composition. And we use this information to calibrate and inform our population models. Now, it's really important that the currency that we're working with in, these, in this effort isn't the total number of animals that we're counting, it's the actual ratios that we're obtaining. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we're gaining a very a representative sample of the overall population to then calculate these ratios that are used to inform our population models in the, in the subsequent process. We also get a great deal of information just about the landscape itself. We can evaluate landscape changes, uh, large-scale landscape changes like the effects of pinion juniper removal, uh, wildfire recovery, or even uh, aerial seeding that may have been done in years prior. So what are surveys not? And I think this is a really important takeaway. Um, and I'm sure that this is a point that is, you know, um, well understood by, by folks listening in, but an aerial survey is not a census of the entire population. And it's for various reasons. So one, we have limited resources as it is. Um, our staff time is limited. Um, we have, uh, we're one of the leanest agencies, Western wildlife agencies in the West. So just having the number of personnel available to continually fly aerial surveys throughout the year um, precludes us from some, from covering an entire area and counting every single animal on the landscape. And then further, we have this idea of detection probability, right? So um, here's this lonely hunter over here on a hill glassing long distances, and he may have been on this hill for hours. Um, maybe it was hot, maybe he just came off of a, a full moon cycle. Animals are not very active. He sits here for an entire day and may only see 10% of the, of the animals that are available on the landscape. Now think about what it's like in a helicopter flying 500 feet above the ground at over 60 miles an hour. We may be encountering conditions of uh, hot weather as well. 
maybe there's a little bit of wind that makes things a little bit less stable than, than our biologists like, and that, that keeps them from being able to keep their lunch down. Um, because of those things, it is nearly impossible, and it would be nearly impossible for us to, to have a 100% detection on an aerial survey. So even if we had unlimited resources to fly, this idea of detection probability means that it's unlikely that we, could, we would still be able to complete a census of the entire population. And finally, it's this, finally, I just want to briefly discuss this idea of sampling theory, because this is what's kind of driving um, some of our more modern techniques for flying. Um, and that's sample theory. And again, um, as I mentioned before, it's just the collection of a representative sample of the entire population, not a biased sample that can lead to inaccurate estimates of our ratios. And again, it's the ratios that are the important um, data point that comes out of our aerial surveys. So now I'm gonna focus on uh, just mule deer surveys. Um, we fly all of our species once a year, but mule deer um, often um, involves the most amount of effort. And it also uh, receives a lot of scrutiny from, um, uh, from uh, outside entities. So we fly mule deer twice a year. We have a post-hunt post flight, which is occurring right after the end of hunting seasons in the fall. Um, during that flight, we're collecting our buck ratios and we're collecting our fawn ratios. In the post-winter flight, which is in the spring as conditions start to improve, uh, we're collecting uh, essentially a fawn ratio. And we're, what we're trying to do is compare that fawn ratio in the fall the post during the post-hunt flight to the fawn ratio in the spring so that we can get an idea of how many of those fawns actually survived through the winter. Um, and we get a better understanding of uh, upcoming recruitment for the following year. So timing really does matter when we fly. And that's because during most of the year, mule deer males um, tend to be very uh, solitary. Um, they don't tend to hang out around the large groups of does and fawns, um, and they can be difficult to find. However, when, it's, uh, when we hit these important milestones like mating, they become uh, more vulnerable, they become easier to find. And so we like to try and fly our surveys as close to the peak of the rut as possible, because at that time, we're likely to see the most amount of bucks on the landscape, giving us a better and more accurate representation of what that buck ratio might be. Now I'll point out a couple caveats that there, that's not always possible to hit the peak of the rut. Um, there's some, some uh, dynamics with migratory behavior where the peak of the rut might occur during a long distance migration and those animals are moving so fast, it might be hard to, actually, to, to adequately cover um, those animals. There's overlapping elk hunts, and there's also seasonal time constraints like uh, hunts and, and other holidays. And as I pointed out, spring flights, again, are, are intended to uh, estimate our overwinter fawn loss. And this resulting data that we get from the surveys is going to provide us with that uh, number of fawns expected to be recruited. So I want to talk about where do we fly surveys. Um, this is a figure that some of you have already seen. Um, this is on the left. These are the Ruby Mountains and the East Humboldt Range, and on the right is Spruce Mountain. We took this mountain range and reviewed historical aerial survey data, and we identified places uh, where deer were at our highest abundance, medium abundance, and lowest abundance. And essentially, we call that stratification. So we stratified the, 
both both of these mountain ranges based on the density of deer occurring. The dark areas represent places where abundance is highest. The yellow, darker yellow represent uh, medium abundance and the light yellow represents the lowest abundance encountered um, over the last approximately 15 years of surveys in the Ruby Mountains. Now, it's important to note that as a biologist, when we um, uh, initiate an aerial survey, it is our intent to cover as much of this area as we possibly can. However, if time constraints lead us to only being able to survey the very southern end of the Rubies and maybe only the western end of the Spruce Mountains, where densities are only medium to high, um, or likewise, maybe we can only survey the west, west side of the Ruby Mountains through all of the high density areas where we know buck ratios tend to be biased low because of higher access um, and hunter pressure pushes those animals to the east side of the mountain range. So it's really important to understand how these densities might vary across the landscape. And then also when we're flying, we wanna make sure that we're adequately covering all areas regardless of the densities of animals that occur there. All right, so now I wanna talk a little bit about how we're surveying these populations. So the department currently employs two techniques, the traditional uh, directed search method, as well as a modern sample-based uh, approach, which um, we often refer to as a polygon survey. Um, both of these survey techniques um, help us minimize the bias and the ratios and provide accurate information um, going forward. Uh, however, as we jump into an example of just what I mean by these two processes, um, so the goal again is to obtain these accurate buck and fawn ratios. Now, Traditionally, using the directed search method, we would fly as much of the mountain range as we can. So in this figure, imagine these two rectangles re uh, represent two mountain ranges, and our biologist just surveyed in the blue the areas on the left side of the left uh, rectangle, the southern end of the left rectangle, and the northern end of the right rectangle. And those are places that represented the highest number of deer densities. Um, because of historical information we've collected, we know that this is gonna give us good, good ratios. Um, so ultimately we ended up classifying a thousand deer um, and that resulting buck ratio was 27 bucks per hundred does and 27 fawns. Now, the, now in, in reality, we probably actually flew both of these, these rectangles very comprehensively. Um, they probably should just be all blue because that's, that's, uh, that's traditionally how we would conduct our directed search efforts um, on these surveys. However, when we do this, we don't necessarily know how many deer is needed to get a valid confidence interval around those because we have not introduced any kind of sampling efforts. Um, it's essentially, we just go and we fly and we fly as much as we can. We might miss some places as well because of time limitations. Uh, but ultimately, um, we're still trying to do uh, the best job that we can to collect uh, very sound data. So as uh, time has progressed and we've began to evaluate other sampling strategies, uh, a new approach has, uh, is being investigated here in the state and being used in several of our areas now where we're looking at this sample-based approach. And essentially, um, again, we have both of our mountain ranges but as I showed for the East Humboldt and, and Ruby Mountains and Spruce figure earlier, we've divided this mountain range into stratification. So imagine each one of these squares might represent a, a varying density of deer. 
Um, some might be low, some might be medium, and some might be high. We then went and randomly generated the plots that were actually going to fly within these two mountain ranges. And they're generally based on a proportion of each one of those densities of deer so that we're adequately covering all areas regardless of the number of deer that might, might occur there. Because we've now introduced sampling into our, into our flight strategy, now we can actually generate confidence intervals. And those confidence intervals, as, as confidence intervals tighten and get smaller and smaller, eventually there's uh, no longer that return on investment. Um, and what I mean by that is, is really additional effort is not, is not absolutely necessary to keep flying. And so we can then take that into, uh, into consideration and we can adapt and improve the sampling strategy over time. Okay. And so the, in the previous example, uh, we classified 600 deer with the same resulting buck to doe ratio and fawn ratio, but fewer deer. And then as we've adapted and evaluated those confidence intervals, we've determined that even that, that level of coverage was not necessary. So again, I have my two mountain ranges with these strat various stratifications, and I've reduced the number of blue blue squares, which represent those places we would fly by 40%. We again reduced the number of deer that we counted to 350, but we also classified the same or ended with the same buck ratio and the same fawn ratio of 27. So it's easy to look at this in a hypothetical framework and explain to you how it might work in the field. I think it might be better if I actually showed you um, the effectiveness of this approach. So um, I have two years of survey data, 2017 and 2018 shown here on this slide from the Ruby Mountains. This was a post-hunt post flight. Uh, by all accounts, it was a great survey with excellent survey conditions um, in both years. And uh, we implemented what we were calling a hybrid approach a uh, hybrid uh, directed search approach. So essentially we went through the process of generating polygons, uh, randomly selecting polygons that we would fly. We came up with a survey strategy of those polygons, but in between each polygon, we essentially conducted our standard directed search flight. So we're still getting this, this coverage almost completely across the entire mountain range, but within that areas, we've we've selected geographic representation as well as um, density representation across the mountain range. So I wanna share with you the results of this effort and you'll see on our top table. So we have in both years, we surveyed a total of about 4,500 deer, but within the sample base, um, the, the actual polygons that were selected in seven, 2017, we had 1,800 deer. And in 2018, we had 2,100 deer. And that represented about 40 to 48% of the total animals that were surveyed. Now the bottom table is actually gonna show you the results of the comparison of ratios, both being done with the directed hybrid approach, as well as that within just the polygons. So in 2017, our uh, fawn ratio from the entire area was 47.9. I'll round it up just to 48 um, for simplicity's sake. And our sample-based areas, so just those polygons, our resulting fawn ratio was also 48. For our buck ratio, the overall buck ratio was 38. And for our sample-based buck ratio, it was 38. And it, again, you'll see that I'm rounding these numbers just for simplicity. 
and 28 and 2018 again we saw very similar numbers where the overall area our fawn ratio was 47 and within those sampling areas it was 48 for our buck ratio the overall area was 37 for just those polygons being flown it was 37. so um, some slight differences in the decimal places However, if you consider the uh, variance that is associated with these flights, they're going to be overlapping and there's no, no statistical difference between these two values. But again, we flew 40% fewer animals to obtain this survey, um, to obtain a, a survey sample using the polygon or the sample-based approach. So that brings me to my next point. And um, a tremendous amount of emphasis continues to be put on the total number of survey, total number of animals that are being counted on survey. Um, in fact, as we're all aware, there, were, uh, there was a lot of effort in Southern Nevada placed on hauling water to uh, water development in a time of unprecedented drought. And because of that, that, in, that meant that several of our areas across the state, were, we were unable to, to survey for animals. And I think that there's a, a natural inclination to point to those places where we're lacking survey information, or maybe we had an abbreviated survey and point out that, well, that survey, um, survey is not valid. Um, how can we make informed decisions without surveys? Now, despite, us actually having survey data in some areas, the collection of accurate age and composition data is going to rely on collecting a portion of that data that's representative of the entire population. So even in places where we might have a lot of effort and we might count a lot of animals, um, if there's biased geographic representation or bias in the way that that person is, is flying, we're still going to end up with inaccurate ratios. Thinking back to the figure of the Ruby Mountains and Spruce Mountain, if we only focused in on the west side of the Rubies, in low to medium density places, we may have completely biased our buck ratio. And that's something that as a biologist, we definitely don't do. Um, alternatively, if we have low effort, but a low count survey, however, we've been able to incorporate this appropriate sampling design, we can actually get accurate and precise ratios without having to fly nearly as much and taking into account all of these other limitations that are being put on our biologists during a time of year that really is a big bottleneck. So there's really no, no one-size-fits-all approach towards interpreting how these surveys end up uh, without that proper understanding of how, when, and where the surveys were completed. And just referring back to our big game status book, there are several areas within this document where biologists indicate it wasn't a bride survey, um, the, the weather was terrible to get a good sample size. There's a lot of indicators in there um, that you yourself, the reader, can look for and identify those places where maybe the survey data is, is not going to be as strong as um, would be necessary uh, to, to carry forward those ratios in our models. But what um, I want to point out here in a few more slides is just how strong our harvest data is and how it can make up for weaknesses in our survey data, either in the absence of survey data or in times where we're unable to get those sample sizes that we, we really feel confident in moving forward with. Um, but just to, to drive home this message about the effort and how many animals might be encountered on a survey, this is the results of a subsampling exercise that I performed on a 2014 data set from Area 10. So I took all of the aerial survey classification data that was collected by our biologists. Um, you'll see on the top, this dark line represents our resulting farm ratios 
the bottom line dash line represents our resulting buck ratios. And essentially I randomly pulled a subset of data uh, beginning at 1% of the overall survey data set, 2%, 5%, so on until I hit 100%. And what I was trying to show is that it really only takes a small subset of that survey data to where we get, a point, get to a point where one, we see those lines start to flatten out. And two, we also see those confidence intervals, which are those little brackets above each point. They get so tight, they either can't go any tighter or you can barely see through them. Both of those are indications that when we hit that certain level, the gain, the return on investment for continually serving, surveying beyond that point is, is, is really not there. And that's a, that's a good uh, a strategy and target for us as we're going through the sample bait ex exercise. So um, it, retrospectively, I think we decided that the sweet spot for area 10 was about 20 to 30% of this sample. So the total sample was about 7,000 uh, deer. We were thinking about 1,500 deer is about all that it takes for us to get those ratios that are, that are gonna be accurate and biased, provided that we're properly sampling the entire area. And, you know, just, just to, to reiterate, um, the reason that we're looking at modernizing our aerial surveys is so that we can really optimize the timing and the durations of those flights. We want to be able to collect the best data to input, in, input into population models and ultimately inform our harvest recommendations, but also um, just to point out the various limitations on staff and resources that occur those time of year. If we can find ways to get the same amount of information out of less flying, that gives us the ability to fly more areas within a given year and do other good things for conservation during that time. So uh, the next source of information is our mandatory hunt reporting. Um, many of you might recognize this form in the middle. This is pulled directly from Calcomize hunt survey form. Um, as you'll probably, as you probably know, every hunter receiving a tag in Nevada is gonna is required to complete a mandatory harvest questionnaire at the conclusion of the season, and that comes with a fifty dollar penalty if that person fails to report, or they're ineligible to apply the following season. And from what I can tell, and comparing to other Western states that have a similar um, penalty the $50 fee seems to be the right carrot to get people to comply. So if you look over at the right, our 2020 reporting rate as of, as of a few days ago, May 5th, for the 27,000 tags that were issued last year was 97.6%. So almost 100% of hunters have responded to their harvest questionnaire this year. And I'd also point out that uh, this rate is, tends to be the highest it's ever been over the last four years the transition to Calcomai, we ended up getting much greater compliance on the harvest surveys, presumably because of the ease with which people can apply. Um, and so again, we're getting very accurate uh, information about people's hunting behaviors in the field and the overall experience that they might have had. So this mandatory reporting is gonna provide us with this accurate data that we need. Um, and as Mike Scott pointed out, we're always very conservative in the way that we uh, recommend our quotas and the process that, processes that go into it. We tend to be on the higher end of acceptable or biological buck ratios. We manage for a very high age structure in our bull population as well as our pronghorn antelope population. And so our harvest data really is, given these return rates, this reporting rate, 
it's sufficient to manage future harvest in the absence of aerial survey or other sources of information. So the omission of these other sources of data, such as aerial surveys, such as radio collar mo movements, um, body condition, doesn't mean that our biologists are gonna be uninformed when we're modeling populations and developing our quota recommendations. Now, I don't know how um, you know, detailed you or um, focused you've been on diving into some of our harvest statistics. The last few years, we've actually started adding more information that we had historically collected, but we really hadn't summarized and made available to our hunters. Um, this is all published starting on Appendix 1 of the Big Game Status Report. And what I've shown here is a summary of our statewide resident antlered mule deer rifle hunts. Um, and I just wanted to go through a few of these columns to, to explain what they mean and how that might be interpreted with respect to um, a hunt experience, potentially uh, population level. So this is from 2020. I will direct you to our statewide average success rate of 39%. Um, and again, this is for resident antlered and illegal weapon hunters. Typically that success is right around 40%. As, uh, as you may hear over the, over the next few days, there was a strong belief that this last mule deer season, because of weather conditions, because of changes in population structure, things may not have been that great compared to the past. But based on this harvest success rate, this is right at, just right below our long-term average of about 40%. Um, we also saw the points are greater. So for mule deer, the next column over uh, would be points are greater. This is for, uh, the composition or the proportion of bucks in the overall harvest that had four or more points on their left side, this was at 39%. If this was an elk hunt and I had displayed this information for elk, it would be for bulls with six points or greater on the left side. The next column is length or greater. This applies to our pronghorn hunts um, and our bull elk hunts. We, we use uh, horn length is a harvest uh, metric for pronghorn and we use main beam length as a harvest metric, specifically proportion of 50 inch main beams in the overall harvest for elk um, as another one of our harvest metrics and indicators of um, sort of the overall success of our, of our harvest prescriptions in the area. So the next three columns are going to actually be some new information. Um, starting last year, we started summarizing hunt days and effort days. Hunt days is, is um, straightforward. This is the average number of days that um, each hunter that had that particular tag spent in the field pursuing their animals. Effort days is actually a combination of scout and hunting. Um, just to, to, you know, put a quick, quick summary on just how much time did someone spend in the field for a particular tag, whether that's scouting or hunting. And then finally, new this year is, is our hunter satisfaction survey. Um, we asked every hunter that had a tag to rate their overall hunt experience on a scale of one to five, very similar to what neighboring states like Utah have done, worded in a very consistent way. So on that scale from one to five, a hunter is required, it was asked to report a one, meaning least satisfied, uh, uh, value of two being moderately dissatisfied, uh, three being neutral, neither satisfied nor dissatisfied, four being, uh, uh, moderately satisfied and five being very satisfied. And as you'll see, the overall hunter satisfaction for all resident antlered mule deer and illegal weapon hunters um, was in between that neutral to 
moderately satisfied range. When we look at all of our hunts, um, proportionately, we see more hunters reported either a moderately satisfying experience or a very satisfying experience compared to either neutral or both categories of being uh, dissatisfied. So, you know, now that I've given you kind of a brief review just of what these metrics might mean, uh, I want to go over just a couple of uh, areas um, where we have resulting harvest metrics and discuss the overall effectiveness of some of the guidelines we've employed there, as well as what that might mean for available mule deer. Um, I've used two areas, an alternative hunting area, and our alternative areas is outlined in our uh, harvest management guidelines. Hunters are sh we're shooting for hunters to have a success rate of 40 to 55%. And we also would like to see them having four point or greater in the overall harvest of 50 to 75%. Now a standard unit, we're really only trying to use the buck to doe ratio as that barometer of um, the overall available uh, surplus of bucks that might be available to hunters in the given year. And I've used for our alternative area, unit 081. And for our standard area, I've used unit group 171 to 1773, um, kind of collectively known as management area 17. Um, and again, these are both for just resident antlered any legal weapon hunts. Um, Non-residents tend to report slightly differently on these metrics. So I thought that it would be important to break them out um, based on residency status so that we have a better way of uh, making these, these types of comparisons. All right, this is a little bit messy. I've provided four different graphs that summarizes the information that we looked at or those, those, some of those harvest metrics that we were looking at in the previous slide. The figure on the upper left is our uh, success rates among these two areas, 081, 171 to 173 and 171 to 173 late. Should have pointed out that we offer two seasons in our management area 17, an early and a late. This is actually a really common season structure that we employ in most of our standard units across the state. Those early seasons allow uh, more hunters to be in the field. They typically have less uh, lower success rates. And those late seasons tend to be a little bit closer towards pre-rut activity. Oftentimes there's a little bit more weather that might make those make bucks within that unit more vulnerable and, and available to harvest. And we oftentimes see metrics go up a little bit during those late seasons. The dashed line in all four figures represents the statewide average that we um, looked at previously in the previous slide. So in the upper left, this is our comparative success rates. The upper right is going to be four point or greater, comparative four point or greater. Lower left is comparative hunt days and lower right is going to be our comparative hunter satisfaction. So taking your attention back to the upper left where we looked at comparative success rates, we will see that in our alternative area, 081, success was 82% this last season out of 60 tags issued. Um, that's well above our target success rate for alternative areas of 40 to 55%. Um, we also saw those success rates in the uh, area 17 early hunt, a little bit lower than statewide average. And we saw the success rates in the late uh, late hunt a little bit or, or right at the statewide average. And again, this was actually, uh, this is a very common pattern that we see those lower success rates. We also, um, 17 um, is in itself can be a difficult place to hunt due to um, lack of access in some places. And, and we oftentimes do see lower success rates 
in this unit group in general, despite despite the year, despite the types of conditions that hunters might have encountered during those given years. On the right, the upper right, this is our comparative four-pointer grader. Again, that dashed line, flat dashed line represents the statewide average um, for resident antler hunters. And for the four-pointer grader, we saw that 78% of those successful hunters in 081 harvested a four-point buck or greater, um, while 26% of the early 17 hunters and 51% of the late 17 hunters successfully harvested a four-point or greater. So we do see some pretty big differences in the, in the management strategy and the management style for these two areas. Um, however, especially when we look at a unit like 081, and we see that in both cases of success and four point or greater, those values are double what we're shooting for or what the statewide average is and above what our uh, recommendations are for an alternative unit. Oftentimes, those are the kind of, kind of places where we may be looking to make a quota increase. Now, 081, we don't conduct active surveys, but we can use this harvest information just on success and four point or greater to, to say, you know, that was a pretty darn good hunt this last year. And I think we might be able to give a few more people tags so that we can take advantage of these older age class bucks that are probably still out there on the landscape. Now, when we look at the bottom, uh, this comparative hunt days table, as well as our comparative hunter satisfaction, um, What's really interesting on both of these tables on the left with our hunt days is there's really no difference between 081, 17 early and 17 late in the number of days hunted. And you'll see on that left axis, those are the, the average number of hunt days. The average was right at five. All of these are, are actually below the number of days average statewide. And then on the right, our hunter satisfaction, which I think is also really interesting given the the differences that we see in our success rates across the state. Uh, on the left is our average hunter satisfaction on a scale from zero to five. And we see um, that 081 was just above that average hunter satisfaction of 3.6, 17 early just at, and 17 late was just a little bit below above. And again, very little difference between 081, um, the satisfaction reported for 081 and the satisfaction reported for 17 late. So another table um, that you know provides a lot more information than it may seem is this harvest composition. So not only do we incorporate the total number of animals that get harvested from a population, this information goes directly into our population models. Um, we would remove cows, bulls, um, uh, number of calves from the model in a very spreadsheet-like fashion so that we can project, continue to project what that population might be in the future. We can also use the information that's uh, summarized in this table to compare what our predicted harvest was during the previous year's quota setting process. So what we, uh, what we uh, expect is we would like to see the total harvest be similar to or exactly the same as what the predicted harvest might have been. And as Cody will get into essentially what we're trying to do at the very beginning of the process, we determine the surplus number of animals that are available to hunt. And then we break that down by the various weapon classes and demand, et cetera. But ultimately we still get to an endpoint of these are the, or a beginning, or we started a beginning point of these are the number of animals that we want. 
Now, if predicted harvest is higher or substantially higher than total harvest, what that usually means is that we underestimated our population because the population metric goes directly into um, this quota array that's, that's then fed into the demand success tables. Likewise, if predicted harvest is substantially lower than total harvest, then that often means that we may have been overestimating our population because we did not get the harvest from the population based on our various harvest metrics, demand success that we would have expected given that population size. All right, so, um, and then just to, to cover some of the other information that we use in mandatory hunt reporting, um, oftentimes as discussed earlier, we're summarizing uh, pronghorn antelope with a composition of 15 inches or longer based on reported maximum horn length. For elk, we summarize composition of bulls with six or more antler points and main beams with 50 inches or longer. Um, and that's from the left antler and the maximum antler length. And then for mule deer, composition of bucks with four or more antler points. All of these metrics are relative representations of age structure in the population. The higher these proportions are, the likely uh, more, more older age class animals exist on the landscape and were available to harvest for that given year. Um, and again, it's, it's a useful metric for us, especially when we're trying to understand the type of hunter experience that hunters may have had while they were out in the field the previous season. So then finally, um, just a, a quick discussion of our various sources of other data. Um, we do use movement data collected from radio callers. Uh, here on the right, you'll see the results of several years of monitoring elk that resided right on the Nevada-Idaho border. Um, and what we found is that at times during the year, especially those times when we were catching and radio collaring animals and surveying, there was a great deal of intermixing between Nevada elk and Idaho elk. However, at the, when hunting season rolled around, those animals had gone to their respective summer ranges and not all of them would return to Idaho or to Nevada. So if we surveyed the entire population um, or all of those animals during the winter, we may get a biased representation or at least a, a, a biased representation of what animals actually reside within Nevada. So we use all of this movement data to determine how many of these animals were likely or what pr proportion of animals are likely to be using Nevada at any given time. And then we um, essentially subdivide that so that during our up upcoming uh, hunting season, we're ensuring that the number of animals that we're trying to harvest are actually those animals that are gonna be available to hunters on the landscape. We also use information like body condition or pregnancy status types of uh, data points that are collected during uh, big game captures. Um, essentially, uh, if, if there's an indication that maybe um, there might be some nutritional uh, limitations in some of our female herds, that may indicate that we should be proposing um, antlerless harvests, or maybe we should be considering the increase of antlerless quotas in those places. Um, as well as pregnancy status, those animals aren't producing calves or, or fawns. The population isn't going to have that ability to grow and um, uh, it, it may either stay stable or decline. And then finally, we also use things like hunter samples uh, to estimate age structure, like elk incisor teeth, as we did this past hunting season, or we may want to determine the prevalence of disease. So in the past, we've commonly requested lung tissue from successful bighorn sheep hunters. 
So in summary, um, I did cover a lot of information and I went through it really fast. Uh, but I hope that, uh, you know, these, these points stood through that we're constantly adapting and improving these techniques. Um, as we pointed out, we're, we're providing more information to the public, to the commission, for our biologists to help make them more informed decisions. We're also identifying more useful metrics to help make those decisions about big game populations in Nevada. Um, we had a, a reporting rate of 97.6% as of two days ago on our 2020-2021 big game tags. Um, that's exceptional. Our, our hunt data is regarded as some of the best assessments of hunter activity from all Western states because we're almost at 100%. A lot of these states are still coming around to mandatory reporting and those carrots aren't, aren't big enough to get everybody definitely not nearing 100% to actually comply with this request. And finally, all of the decisions that we're making are made with a, with a variety of data sources. And the absence of that information doesn't mean that those decisions are uninformed. And especially in a very conservative state like Nevada, where we're uh, trying to manage for a very quality hunt and quality experience, um, we can absolutely use information in the lack of, of an aerial survey to make decisions and sound decisions about our big game populations. So with that, I would be happy to take questions or we could jump into Cody Schroeder's presentation and, and um, do a big round table afterwards. I, I will leave that up to you, uh, Madam Chair. Okay. Um, how's everybody feeling? You wanna ask questions now or do you wanna wait? I have a couple, but I'm, I can wait. I wrote them down. Okay. Looks like we'll keep going. All right, thank you. Thanks, Cody McKee. All right, can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you, uh, Madam Chairwoman, members of the commission. Uh, for the record, Cody Schroeder, Staff Specialist, Department of Wildlife. So today I'm gonna cover um, kind of where Cody picked off I'm gonna pick up where Cody left off. I'm gonna cover a few things that he, he, he talked about, but I'm gonna get more into kind of the modeling and the, you know, how we take that survey data and the harvest data and come up with our quotas. Um, let me share my screen. And can you all see my presentation? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> so just wanted to kind of start broad with a little bit of a broad overview, um, how we get you know to the end result, what we're gonna talk a lot about tomorrow with our quota recommendations. Um, so obviously the box on the left, um, Cody McKee covered fairly thoroughly uh, previous to me. Um, I'm gonna kind of talk about how that data feeds into our models and how our harvest data um, is, is in relation to the models and also how um, these are fed into our quota calculation. Now, the point I wanna make here on this slide and Cody alluded to it as well is the beauty of, of these sort of check and balance system is that we don't have to have every single piece of this to come up with a recommendation. 
if we're missing survey data for a year or even several years, we can rely on a model. Um, or we can also just directly use harvest data. Um, and, I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about that more, but all these things kind of work together and there's many checks and balances in place uh, along the way to make sure that you know, things are tracking. And if they aren't, we definitely make, we make adjustments where we need to. So uh, this was covered pretty well uh, by Cody McKee. Um, but some of the more important things off here that, that kind of go directly into the modeling process are uh, our hunt success. So whether, you know, reporting um, on the return card of whether you're successful or not, which hunt unit it was in, um, things like antler points, number of wound, animals wounded, horn measurements, number of days hunted. Those are things we also collect that are sort of ancillary. We don't directly feed into the modeling, but we do use them in sort of our management objectives. And then new to this new this year, Cody mentioned we have this hunter satisfaction uh, question, which we're just now kind of getting wrapping our minds around how how we can best use that. Um, so the first question that we often get answered is, you know, why do we have to have a model? Why do we estimate numbers? Why can't we just you know go count? Um, and and again, Cody covered this very thoroughly. But you know, by and large, no survey method has perfect detection. Even if we did have a complete census, um, you know, populations change throughout the year. They're constantly changing. Things like mortality, birth pulses, immigration, immigration. Um, so if we had a perfect survey today, let's say things could change for a population, you know, next week because some type of event. Um, we may not, as I mentioned before, we may not always have survey data or we might have gaps in data because of other priorities from the department or personnel, uh, lack of availability. So we use these models to sort of carry forward when we don't in the absence of that data. And that third uh, bullet there um, to provide an estimate of abundance for tag allocation. So that's probably the most important part under our current process right now is a lot of our quotas are based on a population estimate and a buck ratio or a bull ratio or whatever it may be. Um, but this allows us to get have an idea of you know kind of the total population size. We can track change over time, but it also directly feeds into our quota calculations. And then finally, uh, this is something that you know currently we're not we're not able to do 100% with our models. But limiting factors is something we we could identify with models. So we might be looking at trends in populations, why they're declining. You know what's contributing to some of those factors or increasing. Okay, so this is kind of getting into, there's a lot of different kinds of population models out there. Uh, I'm just gonna talk about the one that the department is currently using, and I've got some examples of it to show you. Um, so we're currently using a, what we call a deterministic spreadsheet model. The deterministic, that's just kind of a fancy word for there's no stochasticity, there's no random variation. You know, we put the numbers in, the raw data in, um, we're not, we're not accounting for environmental variation or anything like that. Some of our basic population input parameters, as you may guess, so it kind of starts off with an initial population size. Um, these have just been carried forward, you know, throughout the past few decades. If we need to make a change uh, and go back, we, we can reset that. Um, survey data, um, we survey, them, we generally speaking, we put in the number of bucks, does, and fawns. 
that we count on, on fall survey, and in the spring, we're only counting adults and bonds. That recruitment data is, is input into the model. That's one of the most important, uh, really the most important parameter in the model in terms of estimating the population size and change. So that fawn to adult ratio is really what primarily drives the variation in the models. Uh, harvest data, we, so we do obviously account for animals that are removed from the population from harvest from our mandatory return card information. And then, um, you know, we also have survival rates because we can't know, we can't go out and survey constantly throughout the year. We have to estimate survival rates and we use published literature. We have some sideboards there. Um, if we have data that we can measure it directly, either from collars, um, we can account for that in this modeling process. And then this buck to doe ratio, which we talk a lot a bit, a lot about, uh, is, is really something that's kind of an output of the model. Um, that's calculated. So we have both a modeled buck to doe ratio and an observed buck to doe ratio. And those are another part of this check and balance um, system that when things are you know, wildly out of whack, we can kind of look at the, look at the uh, relationship of those two and determine if we need to make a change and, and if we're meeting our management objectives. Okay, so this is uh, just a, screenshot of an actual model. Um, so it's just an Excel spreadsheet with a series of tabs. Um, the first page is the survey page. So anything in blue is what we're inputting. Uh, you know, that's the data that we enter in. So we have bucks, for instance, in that first few columns, see uh, number of bucks, two points, three points, four, four point plus. Um, if you move farther to the right, you'll see spring data. So that's where we're entering our total um, number of adults and fawns. And then some of the things that are the model is calculating right here for you on, on the page is this idea of observed buck ratio. So that's just directly calculating, you know, how many bucks compared to how many does we saw. And then this modeled buck ratio, which again takes into account recruitment and survival rates and, thing, and harvest. So this is the next part of the model, uh, and I won't go through every single every single sheet on here, but this is one of the more important ones as well. So this is where we we're counting for harvest. The negative numbers in blue is what we would man hard enter in as our harvest. So we pull this right out of the the harvest report information. Uh, we're reporting, you know, everything that can be harvested: um, does, fawns, uh, for mule deer, for instance, juniors can hunt. Uh, harvest does so even in areas where we don't have doe hunts we're, we're accounting for the doe harvest bucks um, we break that down by point class and then you can see some of the other things that are calculated there from the model is just the percentage of four points um, i'm not going to get into some of the other uh, smaller uh, parameters in here but we do account for different kind of age characteristics in the model for males this is our rates page. So this would be where we're accounting for survival rates. Um, the different columns represent different age classes and, and sex sexes. So the, F, the Fs are for female, F1, F2. That's gonna be your yearling, um, two-year-old and three-year-old to 11-year-olds all the way out to 14. 
and then males separate columns so we can calculate different differential survival there and then the two different uh, periods so april august and september march kind of accounting for this seasonal differences in in survival if we have a hard winter for instance we might account for that in the survival rates page and then finally this is the kind of the results um, so a lot of numbers out here but this september pop is really what we use that we're going to feed into the quota calculation. So the, the red box there is just kind of highlighting the last three years of results from this particular model. Um, number of bucks and number of does, we calculate that separately. What we publish in the status book, you might notice is just to the right of that, our pop estimate, that's just the, that's the combined uh, bucks and does. And typically we, we would round those um, you know, to the nearest 100 when we put it in for our status book. But we do use those specific numbers of bucks and does, as I'll show you in a, in a few other future slide here. So this is uh, kind of, this is for mule deer. This is one of our uh, population trajectories. This is our published estimates, the black line. The black dots in line going back to 1976, I believe. Um, and the dashed line is our deer harvest, total deer harvest, bucks and does combined. And then this, the bars here on the top um, are simply there to kind of highlight when we've changed, we've made changes to the model, different types of modeling uh, techniques over time. And the point I kind of want to make here is just that you'll see some pretty wide fluctuations, uh, particularly, you know, from the early 70s through the 80s into the 90s. Um, going from pot, you'll see some trends there switching to a different type of estimator. Um, but really, the point I want to make is since, you know, really about the mid 2000s, we went to the spreadsheet model, uh, things have really sort of flattened out in our population trajectory, a um, lot less variation in there very very much uh some built-in conservatism in there if you'll kind of notice also that deer harvest trend very much tracks the population trend which makes sense because we're basing basing harvest and quotas off the population size but if you'll also kind of notice that that the harvest tends to fluctuate even even since the mid mid 90s early 2000s where our population model has been very very static um, and it is slightly declining um, and I'll talk a little bit about that probably tomorrow. Uh, that's the point I want to make is this, we've been using this same model for, I think since early 2000s. It's been serving us very well for the purposes we need. Um, but that being said, we are looking to improve. We're always trying to improve. Uh, we have a contract out now to develop a new model that I've talked about before. Um, I was hoping to have it ready to go this year, but it's not quite there. It's, it's very, very close, uh, but it's a different type of model um, called the integrated population model. It has a lot of the same data inputs that we're already collecting. So count data would be things like our helicopter data. One of the benefits of this is it more formally can integrate things like telemetry data. Uh, so collar data, not just um, survival rates, but also Kind of defining population parameters and looking at movement rates and things like that to define populations. So it'll 
more right now, our, our models aren't able to really account for telemetry data, things like GPS collar movements and uh, home ranges and things like that. Um, it'll also use harvest data. Um, you know, we, won't, we don't have to make any changes there. The, the data we're collecting is great. And it'll also bring in environmental covariates. So it'll actually, we'll be able to look at kind of weather effects, greenness, uh, forage availability, things like that. Um, this is kind of what it might look like. And it's kind of hard to read, but it's, it's basically a software, a web-based interface, much simpler, a uh, lot fewer levers to pull um, on this. But you can, uh, you know, you can input your data there, select a few criteria, and then it's going to use a different type of, it's actually going to use a statistical model based on uh, distributions and things like that to project the number of bucks and number of does in a, in a total population estimate. And probably the biggest um, benefit of this is it's going to create a confidence interval around the estimate. So we'll have some measure of uncertainty, a variance estimate around our population estimate. Currently with our deterministic models, you know, we have a number, um, we know it's probably not exactly right, um, but this will actually give us some bounds around that, um, that estimate. So just kind of quickly going through um, some survey data. This is for mule deer. This is looking at our observed buck to doe ratio going back to 1975. Um, so, and on a statewide level. So, you know, glomming everything together and the, the dashed line is just kind of a moving average to smooth, smooth the data, uh, allow us to look at trends. You'll notice a couple things I want to point out about this is, um, you know, as Cody mentioned, how uh, conservative we are compared to some of our other Western state counterparts. Um, you know, in modern times, we're, we're at or above 30 bucks per 100 does. But when you look back in time, you know, throughout the 80s, for instance, we were, you know, between 20 and 30. And then into the early 90s, we were really hovering around 20 uh, on a statewide level on our buck to doe. And really, probably in the mid 90s is when we started getting very, you know, much more conservative. And I'm going to hopefully continue to tell a story in the next few slides about why I think that is. But the general take-home message is we, our buck ratios have been increasing over time. Um, this is the survey data. Uh, again, statewide, uh, fall, post-season really, um, and spring on to adult ratios. Uh, plotted them together here just so you can kind of see the difference. So the blue is the postseason survey uh, and the orangish color is the spring data. Um, they track very, very closely as you would expect and, and hope. Um, but there is obviously a, a decrease on a year to year basis. That's because, you know, when we go out and count the bonds in the fall, um, you know, they're in They've, they're in fairly good body condition. They have not really been subjected to winter weather at that point and just kind of the duration of them. Critical period for most juveniles is from when they're born until they're one year of age. And so obviously we lose a fair amount of them, even throughout you know, history we've seen that. But there is this sort of negative, um, this negative trend that has, in my opinion, you know, obviously contributed to our population declining, but it also has contributed to us being more conservative and inching that buck ratio up um, year after year. 
So this is uh, our more recent population estimate with, you know, kind of plotted with our spring fond ratio, fond adult ratio. Bars are the population estimate. Um, so we did see a bit of a decline this last year. This is the most recent data we have that's in the, that's in the status book. The blue dots are the spring fond ratio. Again, statewide on a statewide level. And then the red bar is just the, the 10 year average. So we did come in just slightly above the, the 10 year average, which is, you know, it may seem like good news and it is good news compared to what we've been. Uh, however, one thing I wanna point out or just to keep in mind is that, you know, we did have a pretty open winter. Um, we didn't have a lot of winter mortality and looking at projections now with some of the drought conditions we're facing, you know, I'm really, I guess, worried that that, I would expect that ratio to probably be lower next year, um, especially if we have an average to above average winter. So some of those does and fawns are gonna be smaller and fairly poor condition going into summer. Um, but that is contributing to our population um, trajectory, if you will, and some of those declining trends. So the other port, Part of the puzzle is our management objectives. Um, so Cody, I think touched on this, but we have different kind of strategies for different hunt structures. Our standard hunts, we're managing for the middle of this range of 30 bucks per 100 does for all, our alternative units. We're trying to manage for 35 uh, bucks per 100 does. And then we also use some other criteria, hunt success and four pointer greater in the harvest look at these uh, more conservative alternative units. Those are the units currently that we're, that we're looking at as alternative units. And then that last uh, section there below the non-standard hunts, these are oftentimes hunts that we either can't fly or don't fly uh, just because of the densities, lower densities. Um, so we just use, really we just use hunt data from that. We look at hunter success rate, and um, if, if things are tracking within these guidelines, we'll, we'll keep the quota pretty much the same. We may increase it if success is, is increasing or decrease it if it's the opposite. Okay, so now we're kind of in the meat and potatoes of this quota development process. So the first step in this process is to determine the number of animals available for harvest. And I just covered that with the population estimate. So we use this spreadsheet model for that. The buck to doe ratio is kind of our desired objective um, based on those uh, management guidelines that I just showed you. Okay, so then we, the second part of this process is we got to distribute the harvest into various weapon classes. And we do that based on the previous year's demand, which I will, I will define here in a few minutes. And then the third part of this is to expand the harvest into the actual quota recommendation. So we divide that harvest by the hunt success and we use a three-year average for that to come up with the quotas that it will take to get our desired harvest and our desired buck to ratio. All right, so demand simply stated is just a measure of interest based on first choice application from the previous year. So that's how we decide how to partition these quotas into the different weapon classes. Okay, so we have archery, muzzle loader, and any legal weapon, which is primarily rifle, but 
technically you can hunt with a, with a handgun, you can hunt with a muzzleloader or a bow during that season. It's, we think it's probably majority uh, rifle. The junior hunt is kind of a special case of demand. Um, and I'm gonna talk about why that is. Um, my three-year-old son is, is into dinosaurs and I couldn't come up with a better icon. So that's what, that's what the baby uh, dinosaur coming out of the egg is. But um, since juniors, um, we have a special hunt or a separate hunt for them and they can hunt in the archery as it, as it currently is in the archery muzzleloader and any legal weapon season. This is kind of how we partition the juniors off. And we get a lot of questions about this. As you can imagine, this can fluctuate uh, we can actually keep the demand fairly constant for juniors. And I have an example uh, to show you. But as you can imagine, each of these uh, types of hunts classes have different success rates. And so things can fluctuate. And that's why you might see changes that are disproportional across weapon classes or disproportional from juniors to the adults. Um, as I mentioned, hunt success is uh, the next kind of step in this. And so, but we don't just use the previous year, we use a three-year average, and that's to kind of smooth things out a little bit. Um, again, it, it actually bakes in a little bit more of this conservatism. Um, so it kind of makes things, you know, more stable instead of constantly, you know, ch chasing a, a success rate that might vary. As you can see there, the the archery and the muzzleloader hunts tend to vary a little more. This is the uh, slightly different data than, than what Cody showed. So we use for mule deer, we use resident and non-resident combined um, success rates. Uh, last year we were at um, 40 for any legal weapon, and that is below the three-year average. And that is gonna play into a little bit of what you're going to see tomorrow, what you've already seen for commission material with some of these quotas. Um, so we didn't, you know, by most accounts last year was a tough year um, for hunting. It was just hot, especially early seasons. It was very hot and dry. And um, we had, you know, many folks complaining or, or at least contacting us, asking us, you know, what was going on, why we, they couldn't find deer. Uh, later in the year, we tended to those those uh, success rates actually came back, and so we ended up being just shy of the year prior. But again, it's based on a three-year average, okay? And so that that forty was a little bit below, and that's going to result in a little bit higher quota, all things being equal. Okay, so in this I have an actual example here. This is very much more of a simplified example. There's there's more going on. Um, but I wanted to show kind of just how the math works, I guess. So you can kind of follow along. So in this, this is kind of a hypothetical case um, where you know our desired buck harvest in this case is 100, okay? So that's to meet our management objective of, let's say it's 30 for this hypothetical population. We know that because of this junior demand, we want to portion 25% of those tags to the juniors. Okay, so if you look down that left-hand column under junior, you see 25% demand. In this case, that would uh, result in 25 bucks to harvest. 61%, uh, I pulled these just from the most recent, uh, you know, three-year averages that we had, that we use. 
Uh, you can see junior hours tends to be higher. 61% uh, uh, results in our final junior quota of 41 to get that 25 buck harvest. Now these remaining weapon classes in blue, okay, so this is where the demand from the first choice application comes into play. And this is just kind of one example here. We do this on, an, on every single unit, on a unit by unit. So each unit or hunt season that we have has its own success rate and demand from the previous year. Okay, so, but these are the averages in this example, the 8% for archery, 4% muzzleloader and 63. That's generally what they are across the state. Some may be higher, um, and some may be lower in certain weapon classes. To get that remaining 75%, we have these available bucks for harvest in each weapon class. And then we divide by the success rate. So 20% for archery, 40% for muzzleloader, 44% for any legal weapon. Again, I just pulled these from statewide averages on, a, on an individual unit. These might look slightly different um, and they can certainly fluctuate, um, but that, those 20, those percentage rates are taking that available buck harvest and expanding it into the tag quota that's going to be required to get that resulting amount of buck harvest. So in total for this example, to get a hundred bucks. And again, the currency that we're dealing with is our desired buck harvest or the number of animals we wanna remove from the population. That's the currency that we're dealing with. Um, and we have all these different types of, of ways to get there. So in total, in this example, it would require 234 tags to get our, to get our 100 deer harvested that would meet our management objective. So in reality, this is a little more complicated. And this is, a, this is an example of what I described as the quota array. Okay, um, and I just pulled this one. Uh, this is an older one, but or a couple years old now from area 17. So the highlights in yellow are what we input in here. And again, those numbers under adult bucks, the 1150 and the 2543 is what we pulled directly out of that model, out of the September pop. It's gonna give you calculate a buck ratio pre-season. Okay, so that buck ratio of 45, that's how many bucks are out there on the landscape available to hunters when they start the season, at least the start of the uh, archery seasons. Um, the yellow down below where it says post hunt buck ratio objective of 30, that is what we are shooting for. That is directly related to that management objective uh, that we wanna get to by the time the season is over with. And then there's a lot of more, there's a few other things that, you know, I, I didn't cover in the example, but for deer, anyway, we have to account for does in the harvest because they can, the juniors can hunt a buck or a doe. These hunt 1235, that's where we account for the uh, non-resident guided hunts. So we have to subtract those from the regular um, non-resident hunts just for the any legal weapon category. The resident and non-resident, this is where we account for the split. So now we got to take each of those weapon classes and further break that down into residents versus non-residents to 
this next row here, in this case, we don't have a doe hunt. So we don't, we don't have to worry about doe harvest. But these are the, these are real examples of the, the simplified case I showed you before, the percentages of first choice applicants in each weapon category. The youth success, again, three-year average. Any legal weapon, muzzleloader, and archery each have their own three-year average success rate. Those are all factored in to this population estimate to come up with this desired post-hunt buck ratio of 30. Okay, and that's where these numbers are coming from. There's, a, there's another step of calculation where we have to account for animals that weren't reported. So we know that there's you know, wounding loss out there. It's gonna take uh, more animals to get the reported buck harvest. Um, so we have to account for that. Then these demand and success ratios are then applied to these quotas to give us our, our actual quotas for each different category. And then so this is our resulting uh, apportionment of resident quota versus non-resident quota, again, taking out because they're subtracted the uh, restricted non-resident guided quotas for rifle or any legal weapon. So that's the, the meat and potatoes of how we come up with them. Um, but I also wanted to spend some time on the other part of the process is the public process. So obviously Endow, we have a, a role um, in this. We have a large role in this. We come up with the calculations. We present them to the county advisory boards and the commission and the general public also can review these. We post them. Um, and everyone is, is free to comment on them. Wildlife Commission, obviously your role is to come up with a final decision on the quota. Um, so again, this is just reiterating our public review and commission process. I know all of you on this board obviously um, are very familiar with this, but I just kind of want to throw it out there for you know, the, the public at large who may not be as familiar with this process. We post these. County advisory boards receive the material. They receive our uh, recommendations. They hold their own public meetings to discuss them. The board of commission meets usually in May to approve the uh, quota recommendations. Endow, the general public and CABS all provide input and the commission makes the final decision. This is something that I wanted to just briefly touch on. It was in the, in the information updates. Um, so I wanna, give a huge shout out to our DATS program and specifically our GIS team for uh, making this available. So we tried to capture all this in a story map. We shared it on our, on our social media. It largely, I'm not gonna go through it because it, it largely covers what I just uh, quoted or I just went through. It's not as, quite as detailed. It's kind of more of a broad overview, but it describes this entire process. Um, it's a really cool, website, you can click on this link and it will uh, take you through this interactive process, kind of a step-by-step -step process. There's a video of how we count mule deer, video of actual, you know, counting mule deer out of the helicopter. And there's a map um, that you can, you know, get more immersed content. Um, but again, shout out to our uh, great team of GIS specialists for making this possible. And we received a lot of positive uh, feedback on that so far. 
All right, so just to summarize, uh, covered a lot of ground there. Um, be happy to go over any of it in more detail or more depth if you have questions, but uh, I covered sort of population estimate um, based on these models. Our quota process, the three-step process that we get there, our array, what we call our array, that's um, the demand success formula. Again, demand based on previous year's uh, first choice applications, hunt success on a three-year average, and finally, this sort of overall public process and involving Department of Wildlife, County Advisory Boards, Wildlife Commission, and the public at large. And with that, that is all I have. I would be happy to uh, entertain questions if there are any. Hey, I know you guys did this presentation, well, not this presentation, but something similar a few years ago. And for some reason, this time it's like sticking with me. Sometimes it takes me two or three times, but this was really, really helpful um, to me. I have some questions, but I'll open it up to others before I jump in. Does anybody have questions for either of the Cody's? Commissioner Cavilia? I guess um, just backing up on the, when you guys are developing the population models, I know it's like the you know, for the public too, it's what's going on behind the curtain type stuff, right? Um, and I, I'm just curious, you fly and you talk about, like you, Cody talked about um, flying smaller and smaller areas. You guys have to factor in, I would assume, and, and maybe I missed it, but you guys have to factor in certain habitat has less deer than others, um, right? I'm assuming that's how it's done. Uh, to come up with that total population model, is that something you hold constant or it, like, you take into account like, okay, we're the last couple of years we're in drought. Now there's different areas that aren't going to, does the same habitat. And then, you know, I guess, um, I don't know if my question is clear, but what, how do you factor in, okay, what we counted 3000 deer, we got to 13,000 now looking at this spreadsheet, you know, we don't see what's going on in the back of that spreadsheet. Is it, is it like certain parts of this unit, we know hold no deer, you know, it's down the bottom of the valley. Certain parts have, marginal habitat and then we have the good habitat right is how do you guys determine those formulas and then you know i know some years you count deer you guys have better counts than other years just depending on conditions how do you make that determination every year and i'm not talking about the i'm strictly talking about when you guys are doing the flights and observing the deer how you how you guys make those adjustments every year or how you how you make them yeah you understand what i'm asking i, I hope yeah, uh, Commissioner Cavilia, I can take a stab at that. Um, so I think I understand your question. And the short answer is we really, in, the, in terms of the modeling, we're really not accounting for different areas or different habitat types. I mean, uh, on a unit by unit level, we're really using one number to go in there. Um, but we do our best job in terms of this, the, there's the survey part of the process. So we know that we need to get equal representation from some of these different areas of, of the hunt unit. So Cody mentioned that, you know, the east side of a mountain may be slightly different than the west side of the mountain because of access or uh, certain productivity because of weather patterns or things like that. So we do our best job to distribute the survey across the entire unit where we can. And that, that's, that's, that's kind of on the survey end of things. Um, when we get to the actual model, there is really no way to differentiate, 
you know, productive areas versus no productive areas or high cover areas versus no cover areas. The reason we can come, the reason we can get from, you know, 3,000 deer counted up to a population estimate of say 10,000 or, or even more is because of that recruitment. So we, we know that, you know, based on the sample, we go out and we grab a random sample of animals. Um, and we know that we don't have perfect detection, right? So Cody covered that. Um, and we do look at that. We kind of look at the ratio of the, you know, the number of animals we're counting in proportion to what we're estimating in the population. Um, anytime you're above 50%, generally speaking, you're probably kind of questioning that there are actually more data out there. There's more animals out there. So you're underestimating. But the, but the way we go from the sample, the sample is really the total number. It could, it could vary from 300 to 3,000 on a sample. And that recruitment data, that value, that fawn ratio data that you're putting into the model, that is what is going to get projected out into the population. So you're accounting for all the previous years where you had fawns getting recruited, you're subtracting the harvest, you know, you're, you're accounting for growth in the herd. That's, that's how it's, I know it's kind of, I can't make it any more <laughs> transparent. I would have to show like the formulas on like 10 different pages. Um, but basically, you know, we're, we're projecting for each age class of deer, both for bucks and does, how many we recruited the next year and how many we lost either from, you know, mortality or from directly from harvest. Cody, can I, can I maybe add to that? Um, so Commissioner Cavilia, <clears throat> kind of the way I think about it is if you're taking a, a known number of animals, which is our harvest data, um, from a population with known ratios, which is our survey data, then you can predict whether the observed ratio is going to be higher or lower. And depending on, you know, the hope is, is that you, you hit it right on. And that means your population estimate is accurate, but you could do the same thing with a jar of jelly beans on a counter. And if you had two different colors and you had an estimate of the number in the jar and you knew the ratio of red jelly beans to green jelly beans, and you took a number of red ones out and then predicted what the resulting ratio should be based on the fact that you knew how many you took out based on the observed ratio of remaining jelly beans, you can tell if your estimate was too high or too low. And so you use the word, the verb count uh, twice in your question. And I think that's something we're trying to um, add some clarity on is that it isn't a, a census. It isn't, um, you know, people a lot of times look at the trends in the counts and the one graph that I think McKee showed with those shrinking confidence intervals and those flattening lines is that we aren't, we aren't counting. We can get a sample size with those ratios that have small enough confidence intervals that we know the resulting ratios you know, that we're observing and predicting have a high degree of accuracy. And so we look at our desired buck harvest. When we get that harvest data and we plug it into the model, it says, all right, your resulting ratio should be 30 bucks per 100 does. If our observed ratio was 33, that meant what removing it didn't, what we removed through harvest didn't take it as low as we anticipated. So the population is higher and we've underestimated that population. If the resulting observed ratio is lower, 
based on that known removal. That means we overestimated the population. And so we true up those population models each and every year based on the known harvest and the predicted resulting buck ratio versus the observed buck ratio. Does that, does that help at all? It, yeah, it's, I, mean, I guess, uh, I guess that's probably a misconception too. I think with a lot of the public is that they do believe that you're counting the deer, right? That's, I, I think that is a common misconception. So um, yeah, so I just want to bring it up, yeah. Okay, Commissioner Allenberg. Yeah, I just uh, would like to share my personal experience. I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in one of the aerial surveys, I believe in the fall of 2019. And it's absolutely, there's zero attempt to account uh, to do any counting whatsoever. It's all about classification and developing these ratios. As, as a matter of fact, the funny part about it is when we encountered large groups, we, we, we uh, only classified a small percentage of those large groups because they scattered and you'd quit trying to classify when you thought you might, or you weren't certain that you were classifying new deer. So a lot of times when we were to encounter a group of like say seven, six or seven or under 10, we would classify 100% of them. We'd line them out and they were able to classify all 10. But in some of the areas we would pull into a canyon there's hundreds of deer running everywhere. We may have only classified 20 because we, we, we couldn't keep a track of them. It's just, it becomes chaotic. And so the biologist was very, um, they wanted to be positive that they weren't counting are classifying, excuse me, classifying the same animals twice. So that misconception is, uh, it's real. We hear it all the time in the reports. That's not what I see. But when you see those numbers that they classified, it's an extremely conservative number to what they even seen, much more or less tried. You know, there was a zero effort in trying to, to count. And I would encourage all of the commissioners if they get an opportunity to participate in that. I think it helps us, uh, you know, as I, I talk to other sportsmen out there, it's really helped with uh, the conversation, having to experience that firsthand. Thank you for that. Any other questions? Commissioner Keel? Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair. And thank you, Mr. McKee and Schroeder. That was great presentation. I had a bunch of questions that you guys immediately answered in the following slides. So I thought you guys uh, did an ex excellent job, but along the, the lines of the flight survey strategy, I know for the two areas of rubies and spruce that you showed, it was certainly statistically valid. And I was shocked that it reconciled so well with, you know, the more global flight as opposed to um, the random areas and, and how tight that, that did line up. But what would you expect on areas with say lower density of deer. And I know you guys have mentioned, you know, it's not a one size fit all approach. Do you handle a, handle that differently in areas where there's uh, lower deer populations? Yeah, Commissioner Kill, uh, Cody McKee for the record. I, <clears throat> I'll take a stab at this. Um, that's actually a really good question. And it, it's one that, that internally we discuss quite frequently to be honest. Um, we've actually attempted this sample-based survey strategy in areas where we have lower deer densities. And unfortunately, it was a resounding failure. Um, when you're unable to 
classify even a minimum sample size of three to 400 deer on a survey using the, the polygons, let alone just a directed search flight, um, it begins to, to bring into consideration the overall accuracy of the ratios, regardless of how you may be flying those. And I think as a game division and as an agency, we're really having to take a hard look at how we're flying and where we're flying and whether or not the survey data that we're collecting from some of our big game populations is, uh, is actually giving us what we need to, to truly inform the population models. That's not saying that there isn't value in flying surveys in some of these areas, or at least just, just flying them in general to, to better understand what's ha happening on the landscape. But whether we're actually getting a valid sample to begin with, um, again, that's, that's a question that, that we're, we're asking ourselves. And I think it's gonna take a little bit of time for us to, to either figure out a better way to do it um, or make other decisions about those particular areas and the, the overall effectiveness of, survey, of using aerial survey data to inform the population model. Did, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, that's perfect. And I think you touched on it actually leading off your presentation, the reliance on not just the flight data, but, you know, other metrics that you guys are utilizing to come up with that quota. So, yeah, that was great. Thanks, Cody. Any other questions, comments? Uh, Mr. Chair. Go ahead, Commissioner Perini. I'll come back to you, Commissioner Cabilia. Just a real quick question on the models that you have probably several of them that you've had throughout the West part of here in the USA. Do you look together with all those other people doing what they're doing different than what you're doing? Do you work together with those together or is it things that you do in your own models yourself and being able to create it certain ways that you want to have it done? That's just my question. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner Green for the record, Cody Schroeder. So, I think if your question is, do we kind of look at collaborate with other states to see, you know, what they're doing? So, you know, not formally, uh, we don't get together every year. We do, you know, I'm a member of the Mule Deer Working Group, which is a, a you know, there's a representative from each Western state that's part of WAFWA. We do meet two, two to three times a year. Um, this comes up, you know, fairly frequently. Um, I would say that a lot of different states are, are kind of exploring new modeling methods as well, but some are still using, some are using basically the same methods we are, um, the spreadsheet type model. Um, we do constantly kind of ask questions of each other, you know, hey, what, what are you guys doing that's working well or, you know, trials and tribulations and things like that. Um, so I don't know that it's a formal process, but, it, but it's something that we definitely discuss fairly frequently and we've actually written documents on it that are on, available on the WAFL website um, that, that specifically pertain to these different types of models and different types of survey methods. Um, and there's examples from uh, different states that, 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 we've, that we've looked at when we, when we wrote those documents. Tony, Tony had a big hand in some of those that when he, when he was on the working group and he was in my position writing some of those um, I don't know if that answers your question. Sure is. I really appreciate that because I think being able to talk to other organizations or whatever it is, that's always a good ch a chance to be able to improve yourself even at any of those. So I thought it was real good. I just was curious about that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I guess I would maybe add 
just one thing I forgot that, you know, the other outreach that we have is with universities. So we do collaborate with universities and this kind of maybe speaks to the previous question about, you know, does one size fit all? It, it obviously doesn't, but we're exploring all kinds of different methods, um, including camera, remote camera methods that um, are being more and more used to monitor populations, uh, especially where you have like low detection or low densities of animals. They're really effective for things like carnivores that are notoriously hard to detect. So uh, we're looking at all options and we're, we're reaching out to partners, including universities uh, to help us with that. That's great, thank you. Commissioner Cavilla. I guess I got two more. Um, first, did, did you guys see, a, um, did you on the junior hunts last year, did you see an increase in the doe harvest? Because I know that the hunts were difficult and I've had that question brought up to me and I'm curious if you saw an increase in doe harvest just because it's harder to harvest a buck. Um, did, you, did you guys see that at all? Commissioner Cavilia, that's a great question. Um, I did look at that and, it, and it's an important question because there, there's some implications with the actual quotas. So it's actually the opposite. We actually saw fewer percentage of does um, in the heart uh, overall on a statewide level. Um, and the reason that that is important is because that, that does affect the junior quota because that's that array formula that I showed you. Um, in general, when you have a lower proportion of does in the harvest, it's going to actually disproportionately affect the junior quotas. And it, it makes them more conservative because you're trying to, you're going to basically assume the next year that a higher percentage of juniors are going to harvest bucks. And as I mentioned, the currency is the number of bucks removed. So if you know juniors are going to take more of them, they're going to take it. They're going to have their quota is going to, you know, uh, along with success, success and percentage of does is actually going to play into that quota. And I, when I started digging into why there was questions about why, like this year, our recommendation for juniors is actually coming down more severely than it is for the regular weapons. That is one of the factors. Okay. And then um, I guess my second question too, is if, if you guys like, it's, it's kind of a hypothetical, but if you guys see the, the, the success rates going down kind of across the board and then the tag numbers want to keep creeping up, could you get kind of get yourselves in a hole? Do you have a place where you kind of have to stop and go, why are success rates keep diving down? Um, I mean, there's a couple units that they don't dive down a lot, but they just keep trending down. And then the tag, like 10, 10 is a good example of that. And then the tag numbers jump way up. Um, and I'm just curious if something like that mm. would you, would it cause pause where you guys would kind of look at what's going on there? Um, why continually year over year over year the success rate goes down? If, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. Yeah. So that that's a great question, uh, Commissioner Cavilia. And and I'll just say that I mean that is definitely a concern. So we definitely look at trends, and we don't just you know rely. I, I guess probably the take home message I want to say is just to try to reiterate is we we don't look at just one single data point and try to force everything through that success. It's certainly a valid point that if you see declining trends and success, you know, all things being equal, it could take more hunters projected to the next year to achieve the same harvest. However, 
as Tony alluded to, we look at a lot of other factors. So we look at the, the ratio, we look at our predictions from the previous year on how many bucks we were predicting to harvest in comparison to the success rates. Um, we have this sort of check and balance system. If, and then we go out and we fly. Um, obviously we can't fly every unit every year, um, every both spring and fall, but that's why we have the model uh, to rely on. So it's not um, to say that the demand success formula that we have is perfect. Is I would not support that. But it, but it, again, there's other things. There's other um, data and criteria that we look at. At some point, certainly, if we just saw diminishing success rates, and the deer we're not observing them on the landscape, the model is going to uh, constantly be correcting for that and show you know fewer deer on the landscape. We will certainly pull back on quota recommendations if we see that. Um, actually, the example that you, you pointed out with the Ruby Mountains is probably a pretty good one because I believe, you know, we, we were fairly conservative on that quota recommendation this year, even more than what we would have been if we would have just stuck with our 30 buck per hundred dough, plugged in the formula and let it ride. We actually did, you know, there, that range, we have, you know, those sideboards I talked about um, with, the, with the management of objectives, we kind of have some flexibility there. We were fairly conservative there more than, more than what we could have been or should have been, I should say. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. Vice Chair Barnes. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Well, I'm still reeling with all the information that was thrown at me trying to get my head wrapped around it. Well, there's a lot of, lot of stuff there. And uh, I guess maybe I'm more confused now than when we started. Um, but I do have, a, you know, you're, you're talking about you're, you're using, you use the, the ratios to, to help set that. And um, with all the information you guys sent out to us, which was great, I, uh, I really appreciate it. In fact, I was talking to... Uh, Mr. Scott, um, last night about all the stuff, and, and I kind of got derailed because I started going through it, and all of a sudden I thought I was becoming a biologist or something, trying to trying to go through all that. But but as I was looking at your buck ratios, there's your the observed buck ratio, and then the and then the modeled ratio, and in a lot of those sheets, you know, there's there's a there's a pretty good difference there. Sometimes you know there's two or three, or I think someplace I even saw something like like five. So when you have those discrepancies, um, you know, which, which one do you use or, or how do you balance that? Because that could change um, the number of tags that that model is going to kick out by quite a bit. So, yeah, there's, there's one of my questions. And then, um, and then also, you know, we were looking, talking about fawn ratios as an indicator of population. And, and I think in the, in the book, it was said, you know, we, and, um, Cody, you even said that, you know, we've got a higher fawn ratio, but our population is, uh, total deer population is decreasing. So I guess if you could help answer those two for me, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, Commissioner Barnes, members of the commission. So those, those are really great questions. Um, I'm going to try to do my best. So the, the first point about the, you know, model versus observed buck ratio um, so you're definitely right to point out that there's, there's differences there. And that's, it's actually a good thing. We, we try to 
In fact, we would prefer that those are different <laughs> because um, we know, as Cody alluded to in his presentation, Cody McKee, that when we go fly, we know there's probably going to be some inherent bias in there and that bucks are just going to be underrepresented. Um, and so what we observe and what we count is probably going to be underrepresented in most cases, even when we're flying in the peak of red. Certainly when we're, when we're closer to that, we know, you know, the bucks are going to be with the does and, and they're going to be more observable. But you still got little things like smaller bucks, like spikes and two points that might get misclassified when you're flying over a helicopter. Um, the later you get into to fall and winter, they tend to distribute more. Bucks will go, you know, kind of off by themselves in ones and twos. And so you know you're going to miss some of those. And but the model, the model is just accounting for, you know, how many fawns were recruited, how many bucks were harvested, and then this survival rate that we estimate. And so um, we can use, and Tony talked about this, we can kind of use those, the difference between those to make sure that they are tracking. If things are wildly not tracking, we definitely have concerns. Um, if we're observing more than we're modeling, certainly we got to take a look at our model and say, hey, maybe we're not, you know, maybe we're not doing something right. Um, and we, we definitely do that. Um, but again, there's, there's this kind of um, multiple checkpoints that we can look at and, and, true, and true up. And, and we can even look at the projected harvest versus the real harvest that, that Cody also alluded to in his example to kind of help us guide us in that. Maybe we, we reevaluate when we're surveying or where, what areas we're surveying if we feel like there's maybe we're not counting bucks correctly. Uh, that's the first part of your question. And then the, the second part is the fawn ratio um, versus the population estimate. And I think one, one, a couple points there, um, there's certainly some lag in there um, with that. Um, but one thing to, to keep in mind on, on when I'm presenting this data on a statewide level is, um, you know, the, the population estimate is just a compilation of all the different units together. Um, you know, really it would probably be more helpful to just look at it on an individual level um, because those are just summed. They're summarized essentially. And the fawn ratio is the same way. So, you know, you're not, as, you're not accounting for herds that are larger than others compared to smaller ones is one thing. Um, and then um, the other point that I wanted to make on that was that um, Actually, I forgot my last bullet point. Um, oh, I know. The, so we, we are constantly correcting models. Um, and, and if you read through the quarter rationale and the status book, you might have noticed that, you know, we made adjustments here and there. So this exact check and balance process that I was talked about, if, if we feel like something's wrong, we may make a change. So really... I guess what my, I'm getting at is that maybe just on paper, the population estimate, the statewide, you know, dipped, whereas we had a little bit higher on ratio. Um, and also, um, but, but, but maybe that was a factor of two or three, you know, models that we had to make adjustments to. We kind of had to like artificially lower our population estimate to make them track and to make sure that everything's fitting. Um, and then also just kind of looking back historically, you know, really it's about 35 to 36 uh, fawns per 100 adults is where we're going to look at population stability or increase. 
Um, and so, you know, even though 33 is better than what it has been, it's still not enough to get us to actually, you know, creating more because you still got to factor in adult survival and all these other things that, that affect the population. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. And, uh, you know, your comment about statewide compared to uh, individual units, maybe that's kind of where I was confusing myself because I was trying to, I was, you know, thinking about certain areas, um, trying to rationale all that with, uh, compared to a statewide one, thinking about tomorrow a little bit. So uh, maybe that's where I confused myself a little bit, but, uh, but thank you. Appreciate it. Mr. Keel. Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair. And I think this is probably gonna be a big point of discussion tomorrow as well. Um, but Cody, on that slide where, Cody Schroeder, uh, on the slide that took a look at the population estimate and harvest dating back to 1976. And it, and it looked like to me, there was a strong correlation, at least from 2000 on, that anytime there was a, a spike in the harvest, that there was a small step, step change down in the popu population estimate. And I didn't see that correlation, you know, for the first 25 years of that chart. And in my mind, that doesn't reconcile that a stronger harvest, especially with bucks, would have that big of an effect on the overall um, population. And I don't know if that's a statewide thing, if it's uh, something within the data, but maybe your thoughts around how uh, the buck harvest affects the overall population. Yeah, Commissioner Keel, uh, for the record, Cody Schroeder. So um, I think I understand what you're asking. Um, so a couple of different points I think I, I wanted to make, and I probably glossed it over, but um, there's certainly, you know, um, there's certainly some conservatism built in there. Um, and I think those years that we did harvest quite a few, uh, and maybe we went out and flew and we didn't quite see, quite see as many bucks, maybe the, the tendency was to you know, be a little bit more conservative the next year. But this, this whole um, kind of sense or uh, notion that the buck harvest is affecting the population size, I kind of want to address that because that's an important part uh, of the whole overall equation. So generally speaking, harvesting males does not have an effect on the population. I mean, certainly you're removing some animals. So the total population, you know, you're removing some animals from the population. But in terms of like affecting the overall rate of change in the population, whether it's increasing or decreasing, that is, I mean, it's primarily female driven, right? So females are the ones producing the fawns, um, you know, uh, recruiting them into the population. And, uh, and our, our doe harvest has been extremely light, especially in, in modern times. I mean, certainly back in the day, in the 80s, we were harvesting quite a few females. Um, that certainly could have played into that variability. Um, but again, th this, this notion that the buck harvest is kind of driving down the population, I definitely don't think that that is what's going on. Um, in fact, I think it might be the opposite, honestly. I, I, I truly think that um, carrying high to-do ratios 
especially in drought years and especially in tough conditions or winter, heavier winters when they're concentrated, you know, they're, they're competing with each other for forage. They're, they, if you watch deer, um, you'll see some aggression there. There's a, there's a pecking order and the fawns usually they're the, they're, they lose out and the bucks will dominate uh, on those winter ranges and even other bucks on summer range. So, um, I don't think it's, it's about the harvest. Um, again, certainly you're taking a certain portion of the population out. So that's going to affect the population, total population, but that's not really what's affect, affecting, you know, how the population is performing, whether it's increasing or decreasing. And if you just look at kind of the numbers out on the landscape, there's, you know, roughly only one buck out there for every, you know, three does on the landscape. So by removing those few bucks, and again, we're so conservative, we're really not, we're really not having an effect on the, on the overall population, in my opinion. The doe harvest certainly has more of an effect on that. Um, and then in fact, you know, that's what they're sort of designed to do is to try to keep populations in check or, or perhaps even drive them down in certain situations like we did with our elk, um, you know, several years ago, we were trying to manage those herds down to a certain level. So we had to get pretty aggressive with the, with the female harvest. So that definitely can affect your population. But the bucks are just sort of, um, I hate to say it, but they're almost an accessory part of the population that is a luxury to have. I mean, they're, they're an important part of it. But you can have buck ratios down. I've seen published stuff front in the, you know, less than 10 per hundred and still and still have, um, you know, reproduction from the does. No, thanks for that. And actually through that, your explanation, I, I think it flagged it in my mind because I know the, the first spike that I saw was around that 2000, which I think there was a, a really bad wildfire year across Northern Nevada. And I think we might've had to do, or the department had to do um, some emergency depredation doe hunts around that same time. So that might've been the spike in the, the harvest and then obviously lack of habitat this following years was probably the reason for that step step change down in the uh, population. But thanks, Cody. Uh, Commissioner Rogers, and then I'll come to you, Commissioner McNinch. Yeah, I, I just had um, two questions. A lot of questions have been answered. This has been great dialogue, but to kind of continue along Commissioner Keel's uh, questioning on, on the buck harvest. I was just uh, curious if there is a disproportionate number of older age class bucks that are harvested or taken out of any one particular area as an example, would that have any effect at all on, on populations when, again, those older age class bucks are taken out I and mean, younger uh, age class bucks that are attempting to do uh, the breeding, if you will, uh, for, for those areas, if there's any correlation there at all. Yeah, Commissioner Rogers. Um, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. From my understanding, um, there's certainly some age structure differences out there. And certainly some areas that are managed more conservatively are gonna probably carry a uh, higher proportion of older age class animals. Um, and those are definitely targeted. You know, generally speaking, um, five to six years old is kind of when bucks reach their peak uh, maturity in terms of 
um, breeding and certainly their antler characteristics. They can carry that for a few years, but at some point they start to kind of senesce. So really harvesting those older age class males isn't, isn't really having an effect on the population. I mean, I've seen studies where it, in Oregon and, and even in Utah, where they looked at, um, you know, yearlings where they removed all the adults, the older age class adults. And I think they did a study in elk in Oregon where they took out all the mature bulls and they let the yearlings do the breeding. And they, there was some sync, maybe some synchrony differences there, but they in large got the job done for lack of a better description. Um, and, and the same thing they saw with uh, bighorn sheep in, in Utah when they translocated some sheep onto I think it was on Antelope Island or maybe a different population where they looked at the proportion of a translocated because um, they only translocated kind of young animals and they compared that to other and there was no difference. So I don't think harvesting the older age class has much of a difference on the breeding production or population performance. Yeah, Cody, if, if I might just add a couple of things. I, I, it is a good question, Commissioner Rogers, and I know that historically uh, we've taken the questionnaire data and looked at point class and made some assumptions as far as the age of those animals based on point class. And what we see, you know, year in and year out is that animals are typically harvested according to their representation and availability in the population. So in a year that we have a lot of three-year-olds, we'll see a lot of those animals in that, you know, small four-point, three-point, you know, category. So they're, the data suggests that they're removed from the populations proportional to their abundance and representation. Um, and just as a as kind of a, a curiosity, we, we uh, I guess, simulated some age class distribution and then looked at the total quota for a particular area and looked at the percentage of the males that that represented and assume that all of that harvest came out of the oldest age class of animals to see what that might uh, leave in that population. And even, even doing that uh, still demonstrated that there was an adequate number of five and six year old bucks in that population to, to and as Cody talked about, I mean, I, I've seen uh, literature say as few as five bucks per 100 does and where we are with our buck ratios is typically in, you know, into well into the 30s and 40s in, in some places. And so even if we were to take 100% of those quotas, uh, the, the harvested animals off the top of the age class, uh, we would still have an adequate number of old age bucks to, to perform all the necessary breeding in those populations. Okay, Commissioner McNinch, are you, were you finished Commissioner Rogers? Okay. Okay, thank you. So, uh, Cody Schroeder, so I um, appreciate you going over the, uh, the buck issue. I, I think that uh, I'm hopeful. I, I, you know, I had some cabs contact me as well. So when I'm getting contacted by cabs, I, I imagine that everybody else is probably getting really pounded by uh, with phone calls and concerns. So um, I'm hoping that some of the, the questions or concerns that they have are are uh, being addressed, um, certainly seems like some of them would be. Uh, the one thing that I would, uh, I would ask is, so we kind of addressed the buck, uh, the buck issue and um, how, um, how our, our higher number of uh, buck per hundred does uh, ratio uh, 
um, is, is a luxury more than anything and how that could create some competition. How does, uh, how does, I want to talk about the does for a second, because that's always, um, you know, everyone, uh, I think we all have a tendency to look at the does as you got to have every last doe that's out there uh, because you got to have babies. That's how you make the population grow. That's just, I mean, on its surface, that's exactly how it works. But in reality, that's not that's not how it works. So when we're when we're seeing proposals to remove hundreds of does out of Area 10, for example, um, what's what's driving that? Why is that important? And how does that how does that help that population stay stable during the lean times or uh, grow when opportunity uh, presents itself? Yeah, Commissioner McNinch, um, great question. Um, certainly, we get a lot of you know questions about that as well. Um, but I think I think there's there's at least two things. Um, you know, one is the the doe harvest um, is really about management of the population. So we're not always trying to to necessarily. You know, drive the population down or, or allow it to expand um, necessarily. Um, there's certainly a, a bunch of mortality and, I, and I'm uh, hopefully I'll cover this tomorrow. I have another presentation tomorrow. I've given one before at commission meetings that talked about, you know, additive versus compensatory mortality and, and maximum sustained yield. And, and I've got, I've got graphs that I could show you though on blue in the face, but generally speaking to boil it down, you know, doe harvest is is a good thing uh, in the sense that, especially in trying times when animals are, you know, compromised in their body condition or the environment, such as a drought, because the more mouths out there on the landscape, they're competing with each other. And um, you know, does that are in poor condition, we know are going to have, you know, poor doing bonds. Um, the bucks that are born to those does are going to perform their entire life. There's, there's studies out there that, you know, looked at different nutritional differences and feeding trials and things like that and demonstrated this. Um, a colleague of mine in Wyoming, Kevin Monteith, has demonstrated this in, in mule deer. Um, so it, it affects the does productivity in that and their ability to have fawns and it affects the bucks and their potential to have antler growth and size. So it is super important. And then so the other, the other part of that is just the opportunity. Um, I know that it's a, it's a bad word in some people's eyes, but these doe hunts are actually extremely popular. I mean, we have over 3,000 applicants for some of these hunts where we only have a few, a few hundred tags. And from my mind anyway, why, why deny those people the opportunity to, to take an animal out of the population that's probably going to die anyway, some other type of mortality source. Now, that's what compensatory mortality is. Um, and I'm going to get into that hopefully a little bit tomorrow in my presentation. But um, for me, it's an important part. And, and, you know, we don't take them lightly. We don't, we know it's an issue. Um, you've seen us recommend emergency doe hunts in certain years where fires have been compromised. It's the same principle. We're trying to remove animals off the landscape, basically to, to save them or to make them healthier and set them up a little better for, for the future. That's the way I view it anyway. 
Thank you, Cody. Okay. I have two questions that haven't yet been answered. Um, Cody McKee, I have a question for you about the Hunter Satisfaction Survey. Um, do you ask for feedback with, with that survey or is it just a one, I don't remember if it's, if it's just a one through five, is there feedback? So why are we at 3.5 and not at four, four and a half? Do you, is there any feedback or comments that are given to, to give you some indication of where we might be able to make adjustments and achieve higher satisfaction? So Madam Chair, Cody McKee, Wildlife Staff Specialist, for the record, that's, that is a great question. It's something that we've discussed a little bit. Um, and it also played into our hesitancy to, to, to share this information, primarily being because we don't really have a, a way to compare one year's uh, hunter satisfaction um, to anything else. Um, the best that I can do is compare it to Utah. And I can say that our satisfaction scores are comparable and if not higher than many of the um, hunts that Utah asks a very similar question on. Um, this was something that we decided to do um, with the intent of evolving this over time. Um, so we felt that we could introduce a question this year, um, you know, decide on maybe the best way to go forward. Perhaps we do ask for direct feedback or maybe we start to frame that question or add additional questions to kind of drill down into what a satisfying hunt experience really means. Mm -hmm. um, you know, without spoiling anything from tomorrow's presentations, I can say that when we looked at hunt satisfaction um, statewide, more people responded that they had uh, either a very satisfying hunt experience um, or a uh, moderately satisfying hunt experience than any of the other categories combined. I mean, it's very, it's a very, very dramatic difference. Um, and so there's some interesting information there to be gleaned. And, and again, it is hard when we don't have like a temporal long-term data set to make comparisons, but we can make those comparisons within the state. And, and just going back to the examples that I showed between an alternative area with success that's nearing 100% compared to a standard area where success in one of those hunts was 22% and we still had a success rate that was nearly identical between those two areas or I, I'm sorry a hunt, hunter satisfaction average hunter satisfaction that was nearly identical between those two areas so I have my own opinions about what that means and and, and to be honest I'm going to dive into my into what I what I suspect is happening I think that we have a, a portion of hunters that we're we're literally never going to satisfy and I think that that shines through on these satisfaction surveys. Now, I don't know what proportion of um, the difference from 3.9 to 5.0 that might be, but I do think that that plays a part. Uh, hunting has changed the last 15 years. We're uh, bombarded with trophy shots on Instagram. We see videos on Facebook. Um, you know, there's a, a new hunting camo company line with pictures of big bucks and bulls coming out every day. And I do think that that influences our constituents, our hunters, and the expectation that when they're in the field, that they should be having, they should be seeing similar animals, even though the likelihood of producing a 200 inch buck or a 400 inch bull 
is very small and it requires a lot of things. A mom that's in healthy conditions, adequate nu nutrition, nutritional conditions, minerals, um, all of the planets have to align to create these types of animals. And unfortunately, I think there's a segment of hunters that go out into the field and they expect that that's their expectation. And, and unfortunately, we're just never going to satisfy them. And I would agree with you. I've found in, in many surveys that open-ended questions like that result in more complaints than they do in compliments. So I was just curious um, about that. Um, and then for Cody Schroeder, you know, um, and Commissioner McNinch brought this up as I think a couple of others have too. And, um, and I'm not gonna, I don't want you to beat this because I think I've got my answer, but we've heard this model is broken and it's antiquated and it's this and it's that. And um, I think I got my answer today. So I feel pretty good about that. But can you tell me, so I think what Commissioner Cavilia was trying to get at earlier was the environmental influences. And I think you answered that, but then you went on to talk about carrying capacity. And so how does, how, where does that come into play with the model or does it, is that an added, like an added feature? So once you get to your number and then you say, well, really this, this unit, especially with some of our sheep down in Southern Nevada, it, you know, I feel like we've all discussed the idea that we might have to take some off the landscape. So where does that come into play with the model or does it? And did I miss that or not understand it? Uh, yeah, Chairwoman East, um, it's a good question. I'll try my best. Um, so, I mean, at first I, I, I wouldn't wanna say that our model is broken. I don't think it is, honestly, they've been serving as well. I don't think it is now, now that I've seen this again, either. I think right. there's people that, like you said, they want, they expect counts and not class, classification. So I get that. So I just wanted to share that. So it's on sure. the record. Okay. Well, I, guess, I guess I'll just add, we're, we're always looking to improve and, and just like, mm -hmm. just think about technology. It's constantly evolving and we're always looking for a better mousetrap. But uh, in terms of carrying capacity, there isn't a feature in the model, unfortunately. It's probably one of the hardest things uh, to define as wildlife biologists, and it's it actually, honestly, is constantly changing. Um, so there's not a feature, even in any kind of model, that, that would account for it. I, I think probably where it plays in more is we've got certain areas of the state where we know we're probably looking at approaching carrying capacity when we get to a certain level, just based on years and years of data, biologists that have passed on knowledge. Um, we go out and we collect ancillary data as well. So, uh, you know, we capture mule deer, for instance, we'll, we might collect body condition data. And when we see poor body condition, that's certainly an indicator. Um, there's a, there, I actually have a whole list and, and I'll, I'll try to share that tomorrow in a, in a presentation of indicators but there's really nothing in the model that, that shows that, that it would probably be where it's borne out more is where you see you know, changes in survival rates and bond reproduction. Because when, generally speaking, when you hit carrying capacity, the, the does start doing poorly, they start performing poorly. And that's, that's, that's why you see you know, de declining fawn ratios. And that, that certainly can be an indicator. But it's not like there's a magic number in there that, you know, when they hit this level, you know, we, we know we're at carrying capacity. Again, it can, 
that can fluctuate from year to year and even perhaps within a year, depending mm-hmm. on, depending on the condition. So it, it's kind of a nebulous thing. Um, but certainly bringing in the, when I talked about the kind of the new, newer models that maybe can bring in, you know, environmental data and things like that, we can kind of make more predictions on when, when we're going to hit those, those carrying capacities and, and maybe the effects of them on the population. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I think that was, that was it. Everybody else asked all of the other questions that I had. So any other questions for Cody's? Or Mike, Commissioner McNinch. Thank you, Madam Chair. I just had one uh, quick comment for Cody McGee. Um, it, it's been a good 15 plus years now, but uh, we had there was a meeting where um, the farm rep at the time, Eric Olson, um, I, I believe it was in Winnemucca during one of the cab workshops, and he asked everybody in the room, uh, if you were to get a bull elk tag, um, what would you classify as a successful hunt if you if you got a bull elk? What 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 score would send you over the top? And um, I think we were all kind of surprised that um, it, it was still. I think I think the number landed on about three fifty. Um, that people thought that that was just asking a lot to get a three fifty bull, even though the quality of bulls in Nevada um, are very capable of producing that regularly, and um, I'm wondering what that number would be now based on your thoughts and what you might be seeing, you know, if there's been a, if there's been a, a shift in that, you know, some of your theories and stuff, I'd be kind of interested to see where that plays out. And I mean, we could go back and look at the record. It might've even been a little bit lower, but it wasn't, it wasn't 400 like you might think it would be. Um, people had a f- fairly, uh, fairly reasonable expectation that that would be a really good deal if they got something like that. So um, and then the last thing, um, how does it feel did, when you started with the department, did you think that you would ever be uh, called the lead moose biologist? <laughs> Commissioner McNitch, um, I no, I didn't. I think I really fell into this position more so than anything. I got really lucky, to be honest. I mean, we don't really spend a lot of time about talking about our background, but, uh, you know, when I started in the field right after college, I spent a lot of time working on a elk ecology study for Idaho fishing game and eventually worked my way to grad school. And, and, um, like I said, backed my way into this elk position, which was the fit kind of the dream job for me, at least at this point in my career. And I think the moose is like this extra added ancillary benefit. Now I don't get to claim all the all the glory. We have a lot of great biologists, Carrie Hubner, especially, who has really carried the torch on moose over the last several years. But to at least have a seat at the table is really cool. And, um, you know, very few biologists get to be in a position where you're talking about a new big game species that has uh, repatriated or patriated a state on its own without our assistance. Um, and <clears throat> going to your other point about a 350 bull versus uh, 15 years ago versus what someone might think of as, as acceptable now. I, I have definitely talked to people on the phone that would consider a 350 bull a maybe last day shooter in Nevada. Um, now I can't say that everybody carries that, that perspective, but there's certainly um, uh, hunters out there that, that expect much more than that. And 
in the face of changing environments, um, you know, trying to make sure that everybody gets a chance to at least pursue elk in the state, that's going to be a very hard uh, benchmark for us to achieve going forward unless we get some changes in um, weather conditions, maybe some help on our ranges with respect to competition among other animals that might be out there, especially on critical water sources and, and even the number of animals that we, we can carry. So um, we'll see where that takes us, but uh, my suspicion is that that's only gonna keep going up. Yeah, I agree. We need to have a discussion about moose. Future topic. Okay, any other questions for, yes, Commissioner Cavilia. You guys, you guys have heard enough of me, but um, I think this has been a good conversation. I have another question backing up to the does and just listening. And I, I guess the does come up every year. It's a big deal. Um, and I believe the, the term you used was a compensatory harvest. The question is, is we go kill those does or are the other does still going to die? You know what I mean? And then if you use that logic that, well, we're going to take some does off the landscape for the benefit of everything, you, you could use that in every unit in the state, right? Um, which is kind of being the devil's advocate. Um, and then how do you determine what units to kill the does? And I know for the most part, it's the, the biggest herds in the state. Um, and I, I guess my question is, is it purely just an opportunity hunt? Cause that, and if it is, it is, you know what I mean? But um, it, it's uh, every year, there's a lot of people that have a lot of heartburn with the, with the doe hunts. Um, I guess that's my question. Yeah, Commissioner Cavilia. Um, so, yeah, I'm. I don't know quite how to answer that, but um, they're they're. Um, we definitely have them in in our higher density areas. Um, we tend to have them there. So, one, you can kind of sustain. You know, all things being equal, we sustain a little bit more harvest with those bigger populations and not not really have an effect on the population. Um, you know, honestly, I don't know where we're at right now anyway with our doe harvest that we're truly um, you know, affecting the population. We're, uh, it's my opinion that we could have more, honestly, that we, we probably should have more. Um, some of it has to do with just, you know, the unpopularity of them, I guess, from, from certain constituents. Um, but certainly your, your smaller herds are going to be a little bit more vulnerable or susceptible to, you know, changing anything. So there is, I guess, potential there. Uh, we've got the junior harvest, so we can, you know, use that to at least help us gauge kind of where we're at in terms of doe harvest and take some, take some animals off the landscape to reduce densities. But it's probably not having a big effect on the overall condition of the animals. Um, you know, I think we try to keep them there um, as a management tool because if, if in a year that we really do need them, um, you know, let's say we had a, a high winter or maybe a big fire coming, fire uh, happen, we could certainly look at increasing those. Um, the way we set the seasons, you know, it's kind of a two-year process. And once we get them out there, it, we have to have some type of quota. Um, but we do have these emergency hunts, as I mentioned before, that we've used in the past. And those are really a lot more aggressive kind of targeting at, well, really, we're trying to reduce the population, reduce the densities of animals on the landscape. That's kind of what they're intended to do. 
Um, there's a certain amount of compensation there that you can have this harvest. Um, and that, that's the whole point about additive versus compensatory. If it's truly compensatory, it can't also be additive at the same time. It's, I hope, hopefully I can convey it a little bit more tomorrow, um, but it comes down to body condition and you know, animals getting taken off the landscape by other factors, you know, predation, road hits, just dying of old age and malnutrition. Um, that, that play into that. So, so this light harvest that we have on does, um, we're probably not affecting the population trajectory too much, but in certain times in certain areas where we need them, we like to have them to use them as a, as a management tool to try to affect the population, to try to affect the density of animals on the landscape. Um, there are definitely consequences to not doing anything, not having doe harvests. Um, there's a classic example on the Kaibab from Arizona that Aldo Leopold documented where a deer herd took off exponential growth and, you know, expanded carrying capacity and came crashing down. And, and really they, they affected the landscape so much that they actually changed the, they changed the carrying capacity of the land. That can definitely happen. Um, you know, there's papers on that, that that I can share with you document that. I don't think we're in a situation where we're like that in Nevada. We haven't really seen any populations taken off like that, but we can certainly use them to mitigate, you know, things like, uh, you know, when animals get maybe out of whack with, with what the, the landscape can support. Cody, if I might add, I, I think one of the, one of the challenges is when we think about, um, generational time for, for humans you know we're we're thinking about 20 years before we're you know having kids and, and replacing when you think about deer um, they're really good at producing young when they're in good body condition and it's one of the most counterintuitive things in all of wildlife management how fewer does can produce more fawns and it gets back to that maximum sustainable yield that Cody referenced earlier and was in his presentation that he gave over in Ely. It's, it's counterintuitive to imagine that 50 does, you know, at, at one fawn per, per doe could actually produce more than 100 does producing at 33 where we are now. And so it's really, when we think about these does as, as, reproductive machinery and producing fawns that are contributing to that population, you know, oftentimes we, we look at harvest as a really tangible source of mortality uh, along with predators. And, and that's why we place so much emphasis on predator control and so much emphasis on the curtailment of recreational harvest because those are the two most tangible sources of mortality. It's so um, counterintuitive that if we actually took more of those females in places where those populations were out of balance with the carrying capacity, where those those other measures and other metrics that Cody and Cody talked about, those fawn ratios, those survival rates, uh, demonstrated that perhaps uh, carrying capacity was limiting those populations. We would not only have more fawns, but we would have more bucks to harvest. You could have a smaller population that is in better balance with the carrying capacity, producing more fawns of higher quality that would have a greater ability to grow higher quality antlers and have a higher resulting uh, experience um, 
and so I, you know, I, I look at, at the screen and I see, I see Mike Scott, who's been with the department now well over 30 years and, and could retire, but he's here because he, he says, I want to do something for mule deer before I leave. And, and the mule deer enhancement, the whole concept of the program was you know, born with, with some of Mike's desires and ideas. I look at Cody and Cody, who I know are, are hardcore mule deer enthusiasts. Uh, they aren't biologists who like to hunt. They're, they're outdoors people who got into biology because of their passion for mule deer. And there's, there's none of us that want to compromise or sacrifice the population, the herd of, of the, the quality of the herd, the reproductive capacity of the herd, the habitat upon which the herd depends um, for, for any reason. And, and one of those reasons in, in particular that I, I want to mention is the notion that somehow we would generate tags, whether they be doe tags or buck tags, solely for the purpose of revenue for the department. And I, I, I see it, I hear it every year, emails, you know, social media channels. Oh, they just, you know, they're just departments trying to get more money. So we, uh, we just ran some quick numbers that I want to share with you. And I may, I may bring them up tomorrow, but if we look at deer tags and we talk about adding a hundred deer tags to the recommended quota. And if we use commission direction in terms of that 90-10 split resident, non-resident and apply the price for resident and non-resident tags to add 100 deer tags to the state quota generates $5,100. Uh, if we added 100 elk tags on top of that, we're talking about $20,900 for 100 deer tags, 100 cow elk tags. 500 deer tags. We wanted to get really aggressive and add 500 deer tags, $25,500 to the department's bottom line. Our budget would go up $25,000. If we added 500 cow elk tags, 500 deer tags, 1,000 tags total, we're talking about $104,000. That's a half a percent of our, of our total budget. It's not about revenue. It's, it's not about, you know, trucks or tools or helicopters. It's about the, the resource, the habitat and, and fulfilling our, our statutory charge, which is taking care of the animals and providing some recreational opportunity. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share that. Thank you, Director Wasley. Any other questions? All right. Oh, Commissioner Allenberg. Uh, just it's just a comment more than more than a question through there you know earlier today we heard about um, uh, the increase in in uh, the use of people uh, doing the alternate choice and part of that I believe was because we educated them and part of the misconceptions with the quota setting and our population estimates is also again it's lack of understanding and so as I look at this participation, there's 48 people participating. Some of us have heard this before and have a little better understanding. It's how do we get this message out to, uh, to everybody? And one of the things I think the department has done really well at is doing explanations um, in, the, in the regs that come out, the season settings. Um, when we talk about now we have uh, the first come, first serve, we explain that in that. And that's something that reaches all the sportsmen. And so by 
uh, you know, some of these these misconceptions about, you know, look, we're not every time we come up with these uh, these ratios, everybody wants to tie to a population estimate, and, and it's that in itself is not what it is. It's it's classification, and then also the other one that misconception I think uh, that's common in our conversation today is this the the demand and success, how that all works, and so I would continue, you know, you know, if we can continue to educate more than just us educate the cab members and the, the general sportsmen. I think um, these conversations may start, you know, make it a little easier as time goes by. Thank you, Commissioner Almberg. Good points. Okay, um, well, we are gonna see you guys back here tomorrow morning. So let's take a 10 minute break and come back at four o'clock and we'll finish up our agenda with um, our predation manage uh, management plan and public comment. Okay, thanks.
Okay. We can come back. It's almost four o'clock. We'll give it another minute. Oh, now it's four o'clock. My apologies for breaking kind of quickly there. That was just amazing discussion and, and information. I, um, I was trying to see where AB 211 is on the agenda and there it's already being heard. So um, I, will, um, I will send a note out as soon as we're done to the Senate Natural Resources. <clears throat> okay. Um, got a note from Kirsten. Had to take a client call. We'll rejoin shortly, Kirsten. Okay. So moving on to agenda item number 10, final draft fiscal year 2022 predation management plan, wildlife staff specialist Pat Jackson for possible action. The commission will review the final draft of the fiscal year 2022 draft predation management plan with the department. The commission may take action to modify or endorse the plan. So Mr. Jackson, when you're ready. Where is he? Oh, there he is. I am right here. <laughs> Hi, it's good oh. to see you. Yeah, let me, uh, I'm trying to stand instead of uh, oh. sit. But uh, yeah, so Pat Jackson, Predator Management Staff Specialist for the record, here to present the final draft of the fiscal year 2020 predator management plan. And let me share my screen. Uh, can everyone see that? Great. So uh, no, no major changes this year on a 30,000 foot level. And I will briefly uh, go over each, each project and then I'll entertain any and all questions at the end. So a summary on plans and reports, uh, the, it can get kind of jumbled and messy remembering where we're at. So the, the department's fiscal year goes from July 1 to June 30 of the following year keeping that in mind. So in November, I presented on the fiscal year 2020 plan. We're currently in fiscal year and spending on 2021. I am presenting you the plan uh, that would start July 1 of 2022 for that fiscal year. And all our different plans and reports are available on the website. Just go to your favorite search engine, type in endow predator management and you'll, you'll find that page. A little bit about the $3 fee. It now, uh, anytime anyone applies to a big game or turkey tag, they pay that $3 predator fee. Uh, the most recent year that we have uh, accurate accounting for, we generated almost $800,000, of which $14,000 goes to the Nevada Department of Agriculture. The remainder is allocated towards predator projects as seen in this plan, also goes towards st uh, staff salary overhead. And if funds are not spent, it does remain in reserve for future years. It does not revert back. Uh, so the ways that we can spend the $3 fee on projects within the predator plan on the management of predatory wildlife, uh, research on lethal control techniques, predatory wildlife, 
the protection of sensitive species. And we are also required to spend 80% of revenues for which we have uh, accurate accounting on lethal removal. And a subset of that lethal removal uh, can be spent on monitoring and that monitoring counts, counts towards that 80% mandate. So the budget summary, if you look at our income from fiscal year 2020, uh, we need to spend in order to meet that 80% mandate, $637,830. And in this plan, I'm proposing to spend up to $749,000. Uh, obviously we don't have a crystal ball. And so we might spend a little over on one project and under on another, but uh, assuming COVID doesn't flare back up, we should not have any issue meeting that 80% mandate. So projects recommended for continuation from one fiscal year to the next. The first, Project 21, Greater Sagegrass Protection. This is a collaboration with Wildlife Services uh, to remove common ravens for the protection of greater sagegrass. Um, and we use a corbicide known as DRC-1339. Uh, that's put in hard-boiled chicken eggs and, and, and put out in areas where raven densities are high and raven densities are high everywhere in Nevada. So it's really uh, raven, ravens are removed to create temporary voids around sage-grouse nesting areas and leks uh, before and during, during those seasons. Oh, and that project has a, a total of 175,000. Project 22, 2201 is a continuation of mountain lion removal to protect California bighorn sheep, uh, $90,000 project. The goal here is to establish self-sustaining herds in 011 and 013. And we use both wildlife services and private contractors to meet those goals. These are some uh, population metrics that I established with the commission a few years ago, we are still under that 60 individuals for 011 and 60 individuals for 013. And so we are proactively moving, removing mountain lions in the area year round. 22074, uh, very similar to the previous project, just to protect Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep up in Hunt Unit 074. Uh, this project is a little further along where we are using GPS collars to mark bighorn sheep uh, and only removing lions that might be consuming those sheep. Uh, to date, mountain lion predation is not a limiting factor on that small population. Uh, I think that if there's a beginning and a middle and an end of a predator project, this one is very proudly in the middle where we're predominantly using funds to purchase and deploy GPS transmitters, uh, but still have funds available to remove uh, lions if they become a problem. And when I, when, the, when I first started and this project first started, we did not have a, or we, we did not have a Rocky tag in that area. And in the last couple of years, we, we've been able to produce one for sportsman's availability. So I'm, I'm proud and excited about that. Project 37, big game protection, removal of mountain lions. Uh, this, these are some metrics that I use to work with uh, area game biologists. This doesn't mean that predator removal would certainly happen. It's more of a beginning conversation uh, to, uh, to say, hey, we're concerned about your population. Do you think predation is limiting? Uh, Project 37, $100,000 a year. Uh, it's a, we use wildlife services and private contractors to remove lions, predominantly for the protection of bighorn sheep. 
and we identify where lines may or may not be problematic through a combination of GPS collar locations, trail cameras, and finding dead sheep. Uh, similar to Project 37, big game protection coyotes. This is a state what allows us to remove coyotes around the state if and when they are a limiting factor. Also has a budget of $100,000. Uh, to date, we just use wildlife services for this work and it's predominantly done in areas where uh, pronghorn uh, fawn to doe ratios are low and we'd like to see those, uh, those ratios improve. And so wildlife services predominantly conducts aerial removal uh, right about now in the spring and early summer during the fawning time. Uh, Project 40, this is a coyote and mountain lion removal to complement multifaceted management in Eureka County, budget of also $100,000. And so we are actually connecting both coyote and mountain lion removal uh, in hunt unit 144 to complement previously conducted work uh, that consists of a feral horse roundup, uh, pinion juniper removal, and then also some uh, county funded predator removal efforts. Uh, project 41, this is uh, the first project that's non-lethal. And so this qualifies for Pittman-Robertson funding. This is uh, uh, looking at uh, common raven populations in biology across the state has a uh, large budget. However, only 25% of that comes from the $3 predator fee. The rest is Pittman-Robertson funding. Uh, and so this is uh, uh, just a slew of different uh, topics looking at ravens from deploying transmitters to abundance estimates, habitat use, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and then I should have put a slide in here about this with the state lifting its uh, restrictions in late August, early September, we, the department are intending to host a uh, Raven workshop in Elko County. Uh, I believe I will be at the June meeting and, and can provide more on that, but that's open to managers and, uh, and, and members of the public. So if you're interested in that, please feel free to reach out to me and I can give you more details. Uh, Project 42 is assessing mountain lion harvest in Nevada. Uh, this is uh, an experimentation project. It's basically a, an integrated population model looking at our harvest uh, GPS data and a few other tidbits of data that we have on mountain lions. Uh, it would give us a more robust or it would give us a robust population estimate and then also a, uh, some holes in the data that we may choose to fill in. Um, I do have the preliminary report and we'll be sharing that with the commission in November. And so we're proposing to, uh, to continue and extend this project. Uh, project 43, MISO predator removal to protect waterfowl turkeys and pheasants on wildlife management areas. Uh, this is predominantly for the protection of waterfowl and turkeys, budget of $50,000 on Overton and Mason Valley wildlife management areas. We've done this for several years now. Uh, wildlife services goes out and removes um, meso predators in the spring uh, to increase uh, clutches of both waterfowl and turkey. Project 44, uh, lethal removal and monitoring of mountain lions in Area 24. Uh, this started out just in the Delamars and is expanded to all of units uh, 23 and 24. We have GPS collars out on lions, are visiting those kill sites, removing lions that eat sheep. But we're now also increasingly interested in the diets of these of these horses. I'm sorry, these lions in the area. Uh, the overall average of a study sample is about lions. Uh, about 20% of their diet 
uh, constitutes feral horse. And so that's uh, very interesting. And this removal project also uh, conveniently is coinciding with uh, uh, the BLM planning on conducting a horse removal. And so we are interested in what these lions that uh, at least to a degree are consuming horses are going to do after a fair amount of biomass is taken off of the landscape. Uh, Project 45, passive survey estimate of black bears in Nevada. Uh, this is now kind of uh, mending together with Project 46 that I'm about to speak of. Uh, this is a three-year project uh, that was the series of uh, trail cameras and hair snares. And it, the, the trail cameras have uh, greatly eclipsed the hair snares as far as utility. It's a collaboration with Oxford and University of Montana and uh, the trail cameras are now main focus. And so where there used to be a lot of technicians that went out in the summer and visited approximately 100 uh, hair snares and trail cameras every two weeks, it's now evolving into maintaining that grid, but only trail cameras and they only vi need visited once every six months. And this is what that uh, trail camera grid looks like uh, in and around Reno. And here's some nice pictures. Uh, anytime you conduct a trail camera project, I think they've captured and processed about 3 million photos now. A lot of those are gonna be uh, grass in the wind or uh, you know maybe the ear or snout of an animal, but uh, you, you do get some high quality photos. So it's a nice up to this project. Uh, project 46, investigating potential limiting factors of mule deer in Northwest Nevada. Uh, this is a continuation of this project, uh, $160,000, uh, again, qualifies for Pittman Robertson incurring across Northwest Nevada. Uh, and so we are uh, hoping to uh, estimate the populations of lions, horses, um, mule deer and pronghorn, and also I should have bears in there uh, and look at that throughout the, uh, throughout the year. And this is a collaboration with Oxford and uh, the University of Montana in year-round monitoring. And so this is what that, uh, that camera grid uh, looks like. And you can see how that's connected to and a continuation of uh, the existing uh, trail camera project to the south. So uh, I actually summoned it. Oh, no, I did include it. So I'm going to go down a rabbit hole for a little bit. Uh, just this last week, Cody Schroeder, myself, and the collaborators with Project 46 uh, talked to Bob Montgomery uh, with Oxford and Josh Millspa with Montana. And the, the topic of moose senescence uh, came up. And so just to, to briefly cover that. So this is a moose. This is not in the Jarbridge. This is actually uh, uh, in, in northern Michigan. Uh, the name of that national park is escaping me. I apologize. But anyway, this is uh, Island Royale. So this is an island where there's wolves and there's moose, and this has been studied for a very long time. And so if you think about senescence, an animal reaching senescence is the same as the individual here on the very right side where you're, you're past your prime. And so what, what happens to moose once they reach senescence? And so if you were a wolf and you ate moose on Island Royale, would you prefer the, the moose on the left or the right? And uh, you would probably have less of a risk and more of a reward if you focused on moose that reached an essence, such as the one on the left. And so Bob Montgomery, one of our collaborators with Project 46, mentioned some papers that he had on this very issue and habitat selection based on 
uh, on moose senescence. So moose in their prime and moose in uh, once they've reached senescence uh, use habitat on Island Royale fairly differently. And so these are estimated uh, distributions of moose such as the, on the left and wolves on the right. You can see there's a fair amount of overlap, but it's not, it's not complete. If you're interested in either of these papers, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to share them. Uh, and so this is a little noisy for a PowerPoint presentation. I also pulled it out of the manuscript, uh, but there was a, a notable difference in the habitat that senescent moose were died and eaten in by wolves and uh, and in prime wolf, prime moose that were eaten by wolves. And so this 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 created an interesting conversation and a topic around well what, what's the body condition and proportion of animals that have reached senescence in, in northwest Nevada which brought us to, uh, to toothware. And, uh, and so animals reach senescence a little differently than humans do uh, since they have to survive on their own on the landscape. And, uh, and, and so just as a very interesting, again, I said, we'd go down a rabbit hole tangent. Uh, we're hoping to collar some, some mule deer with this project and we'll be taking uh, a dental imprint of deer and then doing kill site visitations or looking at them when they're harvested to see that tooth wear with an interest in our mule deer in Northwest Nevada's teeth wearing out at a quicker rate than other parts of the state, putting them in poor body condition and therefore driving their, their habitat selection. So hopefully I put a bow on that for you. Uh, and with that, I will entertain any and all questions. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. You always entertain me. <laughs> I hope that's any a good thing. <laughs> it is, <laughs> especially at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. The last conference I was at before COVID struck, I gave an mm -hmm. oral presentation at the end. And, uh, I think three people came up to me and two, their initial comment was, I really appreciate your sense of humor. And, and though flattering, I thought maybe I should throttle back on my jokes a little bit. <laughs> no, we're appropriate. Hey, I have a quick question for you and then I'll open it up. Um, Actually, I have probably a couple of them, but could there be a correlation with the moose and the wolf, with the mountain lion and the horse, um, the feral horse? Is that, I don't know if maybe there was something you were trying to talk about there in that, in project. Um, uh, so are, are you asking? Uh, I've asked you this before, is there, I mean, and I know you're going to be studying it and, and with the removal of those horses, um, you know, we, we have seen the, uh, the lions taking on a little bit of a horse diet. So is there, could there be a correlation with that, with the, the horses that maybe aren't doing so well and the, and the lions? Um, so that, that's a really interesting question. So I can tell you that the majority of horses that are eaten in Southeast Nevada, units uh, 23 and 24, uh, the majority are yearlings. So they're smaller bodied animals. Um, however, there are uh, uh, adults eaten, particularly a, a subset of the marked lions tend to focus more on horses and those individuals uh, tend to eat more adult horses. Uh, it's also interesting, uh, horses across the state, and I, I only know a very small amount about this, but 
horses across the state of Nevada are, don't have the same exact genetic background. And the, the body size in Southeast Nevada is, is substantially smaller than in other parts of the state, which probably makes them uh, more susceptible to lions since they're not quite as challenging to take down. But um, I don't know. I, horses are, are much more long lived than, uh, than moose. Um, but uh, I don't, I, I, I don't think that I can answer that right now. If, if horses, I'm sorry, if lions that take an adult horse, uh, if it's reached the essence or not, I, I don't know. Okay. Okay. But I like that question. Thanks. Any other questions for Mr. Jackson? Commissioner Keel. Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair and, and Mr. Jackson. Yeah, I think from what I recall when we were down on that project 44, there was a little bit of a correlation with like three to four year old uh, horses when their teeth were changing and their body condition was going down. Um, but my question on project 44, do we have a date on that horse gather? And then also while I've got you um, on projects 37 and 38 where you coordinate um, with the staff biologist, can you just give me a little background on have we been expending the full budgeted amount there? Um, does that dollar amount cover the area biologist needs or concerns or is money going back in the pot or just a brief update on project 3738 as well? Um, so your, your question is on the expenditures of projects 37 and 38? Correct. And okay. if there's enough money and just maybe get into some of that coordination with the area biologist and and how are those projects going? Um, well, so project 37, the removal of lions, uh, that is more of a year round project because we are uh, 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 removing lions to protect sheep, which year, a year round challenge. Uh, project 38, removal of coyotes. We really just conduct coyote removal uh, uh, before and during fawning season. So that's, that's more of a boom and bust uh, schedule, if you will. I cannot speak to the exact expenditures for this year. I have not summarized them, um, but I can tell you from what I recall from the November presentation on the Predator Report, we were pretty close with both. Um, I, uh, I don't think uh, that those projects need more money at the moment. Um, but uh, we, we do have a new fiscal deputy director, and I can tell you that she spent the last several weeks of her starting career within now resummarizing uh, my budget and several others. But to my most uh, updated understanding, I do have reserves. And so I, I think it's within the department's wherewithal and ability to tap into that and spend more if we needed to in the upcoming year. So I'm, I'm comfortable with $100,000 on both uh, for right now. Um, and then I'd also like to make a comment on the record that Wildlife Services has done an outstanding job of continuing to rise to the occasion uh, uh, during COVID and the various challenges that it's presented. So um, I've, been, I've been really happy with uh, how well they've done. Thanks, Mr. Jackson. Just so did they have a date on the horse gather down in Oh, I apologize. I didn't answer that. Um, nope. I don't know that off the top of my head. Um, I would, I'll have to look into that and get back to you. 
I don't know that they do. I saw something this week and I can forward it to you, Commissioner Keel, that was asking for comment um, by May 13th. So I'm not sure if they have a date set yet, but I, I may be incorrect, so. Yeah, that's good. I'm extremely, extremely curious to those results too, after those horses are off the landscape, what'll happen, so. Yeah, Appreciate it. agreed. You bet. Any other questions for Mr. Jackson? I'll make another comment on Project 44. We do have outside collaborators now that have brought a fair amount of effort and funding to the project. It's the USGS out of Fort Collins, and and that's Dr. Kate Seneca and then Dr. Dave Stoner out of uh, out of Utah State. And at the November meeting, I will invite one or both of them to uh, uh, give a short presentation with a different flavor on how this is progressing. I, I, lions consuming feral horses, I think, is is pretty interesting to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Especially since we've just got such an abundance of horses. Okay, other questions, comments? Okay, seeing none. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Oh, that brings us to uh, agenda item number eleven: public comment period. Public comment will be limited to three minutes. No action can be taken by the commission at this time. Any item requiring commission action may be scheduled on a future commission agenda. Persons wishing to comment are invited to raise their hands in the virtual meeting forum and will be individually called upon until all wishing to comment have had the chance to do so. So we'll take public comment. Madam Chair, I hate to interrupt, but I, I maybe I totally missed something. Did we need, need to go out to um, public comment or take action oh, on item number 10? I, <laughs> my, yes, I'm so sorry. That's we okay. do. I, yes, I thank you. Let's go what back. Your plans were, so I wanted to ask. So. <laughs> it, it, it is almost five o'clock, but I, it is. I, 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 uh, I do need you all to take action on this item. Okay. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry. My my bad. Okay, so we do need to take action on agenda item number 10. Any discussion on uh, Mr. Jackson's predator plan? Okay, seeing none, we'll take public comment now on the predator management plan. Do we have any public comment on the management predator management plan? Okay, Mr. Dixon? Are we getting Mr. Dixon to join us? Here he comes. There we go. Can you hear me now? I can, thank you. Go ahead. I've lost the ability. There you are. Oh. I can't hear you, so um, I apologize. I'm having problems here, so okay. if you can if you can hear me, Tiffany, just raise your hand so I know that I'm there. Okay. Uh, what I wanted to say is that um, at the Clark Cab, uh, we've been doing Raven projects now for ten plus years, 
And we're hoping that the department in their summary report for predator plan will basically not only tell us how much money we've spent, but what have actually we learned and what are the results of that? I know we're, we're heading on to some new studies right now, but we've been putting 100,000 plus a year into raven removal for quite a while. And I, I'd like to know whether that's led us to getting, you know, the ability to get higher limits uh, for raven removal out there, or if there's other things that we've learned from 10 years, because I've really not seen a, a fully um, organized uh, put together of all that, Tony. So we were asking about that. Um, the other question I think that the cab had, and, and of course, you're going to love this. I, uh, I uh, dropped my, uh, my thing off here, but um, on the, uh, there was a question raised by uh, Vice Chair Reese about uh, fund recruitment and, and, and whether, um, you know, coyotes and stuff look at that and whether we, when we do coyote removal, we always look at um, doing it at the time of the year when, when, when both uh, our antelope and our, um, and our mule deer are fawning or even our elk. Uh, the real question is, is do we know what sort of mortality rate we have in areas where we don't do coyote removal? Have we ever done that study? That was a question that was asked of me and it, it could be a non-lethal study so you could get Pittman-Robertson dollars for it or something like that and, and add to it. But that's a study we hadn't seen. Those are the two main things that we wanted to look at. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dixon. <clears throat> okay, Catherine Smith. Is Ms. Smith joining us? There she comes. Okay, can you hear me now? We can, thank you. Please go ahead. Thank you. This is uh, Catherine Smith with Washoe County. Actually, um, Dr. Dixon brought up most of the points or some of the points that I wanted to bring up. Um, I, I didn't see a lot of information on cost effectiveness. Um, Project 21 has been going on for over a decade. And in the past in predator plans, it was, it hadn't been shown to benefit grouse populations when compared to similar areas. So I guess my question is, is, is when we don't see a benefit, is it okay to kill large numbers of these predators? Or maybe better stated, is it okay to kill the predators as long as you don't feel they're overloaded overall population is threatened are you know are they expendable and the other thing the other question I had because it wasn't brought up this legislative session is the commission supportive of the 80 percent mandate that was uh, brought in legislatively um, what does the commission feel about when wildlife management is legislated like this and why was a potential bill not supported in the legislature because um, the department can't do that. They have kind of been effectively muzzled by the sportsmen. And the, the other thing I wanted to say is, uh, is to discuss the role of predators um, because they not only have a downstream diversity role, but they also limit disease spread. And now we're bringing up hemorrhagic rabbit disease 
and chronic wasting disease, which will be coming to Nevada. And we keep our predator population so artificially depressed that I, I think we have to consider that the decisions of the commission might be part of a growing problem threatening the long-term health of the wildlife species. And finally, with the water concerns in the state, don't we have to ask ourselves that this money might be better spent on habitat improvement and water supply efforts? Um, I do understand these are sportsmen's dollars, but this is our collective wildlife. So I'm hoping that you take these into consideration because um, just as was mentioned in some of the discussion earlier, I think when we don't have predators and when we keep these numbers at really high carrying capacities, we end up hurting our long-term population of ungulates even, and we definitely decrease our diversity downstream. So disease is gonna become more and more of an issue, especially with drought. So I'm hoping that you take these into consideration for the long-term health of the wildlife. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else wishing to speak on the predator management plan? Just raise your hand. Okay, I don't see any, so I'll bring it back to the commission for discussion or a motion. Commissioner Allberg. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a motion to accept the uh, fiscal year 2022 uh, predation management plan as presented. Thank you. I I'll second it. And I have a second. Okay, we have a motion by Commissioner Allberg and a second by Vice Chair Barnes to accept the 2022 predation management plan. All in favor, raise your hand. Okay, motion carries eight to zero with Commissioner Hubs um, away from the meeting. Okay. Uh, Madam Chair, if I may mention one other thing, uh, I, I yes. should have put this in the PowerPoint presentation. I, I get a lot of questions on products and what we've discovered. Uh, if you go to the same part on our website where all the previous plans and reports are, I've compiled a, a $3 predator fee bibliography and there's over five pages of various scientific presentations and reports that have uh, resulted from funding, at least in part, from this fee. Uh, if the, I have links to some of those publications, you should be able to punch the title of many into Google and find it. And if anyone, uh, any of the members of the commission or members of the public, CABS, etc., cetera, uh, have trouble finding a manuscript, uh, you can email me at pjackson at endow.org and I can, I can help you get that. And as far as in, more information on Ravens, uh, please uh, try to come to the workshop in Elko. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. What's, it, what's the date on that uh, workshop in Elko? It's uh, Monday, August 30th to Wednesday, September 2nd. August 30th through September 2nd. Okay, great. Super, thank you. Okay, now we'll move on to public comment. Agenda item number 11, public comment period. Public comment will be limited to three minutes. No action can be taken by the commission at this time. Any item requiring commission action may be scheduled on a future commission agenda. Persons wishing to comment are invited to raise their hands in the virtual forum and will be individually called upon until all wishing to comment have had the chance to do so. So, Mr. Voltz. 
Can you hear me now? We can. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yes, for the record, Fred Volz. I'd like to quickly point out a, a problem that seems to be happening on a regular basis. Uh, there are no support materials that have been posted either for the predation management plan that was just discussed, for the quota setting presentation from um, the Cody's and uh, Mr. Smith's presentation this morning. And uh, for the public to be informed about what's going on and to read this in advance and reflect on it, it's very important to have the information before it's presented and dropped on us. So I would hope that that could be improved upon. And FYI, the fiscal year 2022 plan that you just passed for predation is not posted on the NDOW website. I just went to it. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any other public comment? Madam, Madam Chair, if there is no other public comment, I know that uh, the uh, Finance Committee Chair Gilly Yannick is here and uh, would like to make some public comment relative to uh, CAB uh, budgets. We've been struggling in getting CAB um, input relative to their budget desires for the next year and uh, want to put that call out. Um, so I, I don't know, Gil, if you're able to unmute yourself and uh, maybe share what it is you're looking for from those county advisory boards. I appreciate it. That would be great because I did have a question from, um, I believe it was Mr. McVickers from White Pine County last night. So that would be fantastic. Here we go. Hi. Yeah, so we can Thank see you, you too. <laughs> Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I'll try to make this brief because I know you've got a lot of things going on. Uh, I've been coming before the commission for the past 18 years. That's a long time. And uh, usually I come prepared with a, a request with an exact dollar amount that I'd like the commission to approve so we can distribute that amongst the uh, uh, cabs that are anxiously awaiting some funding. Uh, this year, I have to apologize to the commission. Uh, communication has been extremely poor, not only with the cabs, but with the county treasurers. It's very difficult for us to make a specific amount available if we don't know what they need to attend the various meetings based upon what they have in their treasury. We send out a spreadsheet that was we I created <laughs> eons ago, and it's a simple spreadsheet. Are you going? Yes, no. How are you going to go? Car, train, plane, walk? You know, those simple questions to answer, and the spreadsheet does all the work for the cabs. Uh, this year, uh, it's like trying to pull teeth. Uh, we, we've sent out letters, we've sent out emails, and I don't know what to, I'm asking the commission for a little power <laughs> or if their influence can come again to res 
request the cabs, this is serious. You're not going to have the funds to operate if you don't put in a budget that will be hopefully eventually approved. So the ball is in really in their court because if we don't hear from them, they're not gonna get anything. And with the pandemic, I know it's difficult to hold a meeting. You know, Carson does it electronically. Not every county has that capability and we recognize that. But we don't wanna be, let that be a, a, a roadblock for the cabs to have their meetings if they have to hire secretarial service, rent a facility, advertise in the paper about their meetings. We want to provide them with the funds necessary to carry on their duties. But if we don't hear from them or their, or their county treasurer, our hands are tied. I can't come before you and wave my hands in the air and say, why don't we use last year's numbers? Agreed. I, I don't want to do that. Okay. Well, we've thank got, you very much. Thank you, Mr. Yannick. And we've got many members of the CABS, not many, but several on today. Um, and I think we can probably even send an email out and ask them to get in touch with their county treasurers. I would appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Yannick. Any other public comment? Mr. Cooney. Mr. Cooney joining us. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay. Um, with the information that Gil was just sharing. Uh, I know that Elko County, we sent in, I sent in the budget um, and I had taken it through the county. So I hadn't received any other information saying that we needed to provide more information or if anything else was needed. So just to clear that up, uh, if I need to do something different, I definitely can, but I thought that everything had been submitted there. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Cooney. Uh, Mr. Dixon. Go ahead, Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon.
are you able to speak to us? I was trying to. Can you hear me now? Yes. I, every time it uses a different microphone right now on my computer. So I don't know what's going on. Uh, the thing is, is Clark County has submitted their, um, their budget request and it went through the county. So I'm assuming it went through the county treasurer. I think uh, it would be nice when you send out something to say whether what information is missing as, as requested by the previous caller. The second thing I have is, is the uh, trust, public trust presentation uh, mm -hmm. or, or information. Is there some way that we can get more of that um, from, from the department so we can share that more with the cabs? Because that conversation and then the DAG's response to that conversation of what's going on, if somebody could summarize that, and maybe it's just going to be in the meeting minutes, but I found that to be very powerful because we hear a lot of things and it's one thing to understand what the what the public trust is and what's going on with that, but it's also to understand in legal space that there's a lot of consternation around it right now because it's something new and, and it's trying to get people not to get to overreact to it, but to react to it appropriately so that we look at, you know, you look at it from a from the side of being a, a humanitarian, I guess, of, of everybody's opinions out there and, and, and listening to what people have to say. And I think that's what I picked up listening to it, but it would be nice if we had some way of summarizing that presentation, even though there wasn't a hard copy, like a present presentation, it was, it was a good thing. And, you know, if I was the only one in my cab that listened, it's hard for me to repeat that to my cab in the same fever that we had in that discussion. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dixon. Okay. Any other public comment? Mr. Cooney, did you wish to speak again? I see your hand up. Nope, okay. I think we're done with public comment. I don't see any other hands. So with that, we will adjourn the meeting. I'll see you all tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. with a very full agenda again. So have a nice evening, everyone. Mm -hmm.